Real Talkers, good morning at 8.30 on this Wednesday, January 27th. Appreciate you tuning in. Nice mellow start to this Wednesday morning. I don't know where you're watching from uh, or where you're listening from if you're streaming us, uh, if you're streaming our audio live on Mixler, but uh, where we are, it is cold right now. And uh, we're so happy to have you. It is, yeah, it is, it is, uh, this is, this winter weather is for real. And we're excited to have you with us. So whether or not you're uh, throwing an extra coffee into the mix today, uh, whether you're going to, you know, keep those slippers on, stay in the flannel through the morning, you do you. We've got a great show in store coming up in just a few moments. Uh, Max Fawcett will join us. He's got a piece in the National Observer speculating around who may be named as Canada's next governor general. And uh, I'll spoil the surprise because he's already tweeted about it. But he thinks that the right honorable Joe Clark might be a good choice. He says, yeah, I know he's 81. He says, but I think that Joe Clark may be the right person for the role. This, of course, following the resignation of Governor General, uh, former Governor General Julie Payette just uh, a short time ago. And we're going to have an update in our newscast coming up at nine o'clock with regards to some of the the rumors that are circulating and some of the redacted reports that are coming out uh, that that are painting more of a clear picture of what it may like may like have been have been like to uh, to work alongside or to work with. Uh, Governor General Payette, uh, some some reports of unwanted physical contact. It sounds like it might have been a total nightmare. So uh, this choice has to be a good one. The prime minister's got to make a good choice here because all eyes are going to be on his his choice. It's probably one that that many Canadians, let's be honest, let's be real for a second. Most people, if you would have stopped them on the street prior to two weeks ago and said, hey, how is the governor general chosen? I bet you a lot of Canadians would say, well, by the queen. Or or somebody tells the or somebody makes a list and suggests to the queen. Uh, uh, What's the prime minister that makes the call? And Sam's going to make his argument. He's considered Perry Bellegarde. He's considered Katie Lang. Uh, There are many choices that could be made. uh, And we'll find out why he thinks that, that Joe Clark is the one. Plus, the Fairmont Jasper Park Lodge will be welcoming the Bachelorette, the production to its property uh, early into the spring. Well, when winter into spring, it means that they've had to cancel a whole bunch of reservations. But the really neat, there's a lot of really neat elements. Um, probably nobody knows more about the Bachelor and the Bachelorette than my partner in life, uh, formerly my Bachelorette, until I put a ring on it. She accepted my final rose, and and here we are years later. Carrie Skelton. Lifestylist and blogger at kerryskelton.com will join us uh, before nine o'clock to shed some insight into what's happening in Jasper. It's actually huge news for Jasper tourism, for people that have been laid off through the pandemic, for what that property has been able to do. Uh, I know that some people in the in the film and production communities are not thrilled uh, that it doesn't look like they're going to be hiring a lot of local talent when it comes to the production of it. Um, I think that's very easily explained. And I think that people aren't considering the reality of what goes on. This is a TV show that travels all around the world all the time. In other words, they've got a long time crew that travels with the production. Uh, so it wouldn't make sense, in my opinion. And I'm someone that has worked in film and television in Alberta for a lot of years. Doesn't make sense to me to hire local, but we can get into that in time. In the nine o'clock hour, we're talking mental health today. We're going to talk about addictions. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, a buddy of mine, uh, Chris, uh, 
you you may know him from his his music involvement or his his mental health advocacy. He's all over the map uh, in Alberta. What I mean is he's all over people's radar uh, and uh, living with uh, bipolar disorder and and the way that he manages it and the way that he talks about it is just remarkable. And I'm so proud of him. Uh, he's going to be joining us as part of our panel coming up at nine o'clock today and at ten o'clock. Camp Marie laughing. Cameron Hughes is going to join us. He is uh, he is the world's <laughs> most excited. Sam, can you call up his book cover? This is amazing. The, the photo of him just, I think, kind of says it all. The king of cheer. But he is the world's most celebrated crowd igniter. In his words, the world's most electrifying crowd igniter. Uh, if you've been to a National Hockey League game in Canada, w- whether it's Leafs, Sens, Oilers, Flames, whatever, you've seen this guy in action. Uh, he works in the NBA. He's worked at the U.S. Open. He's worked uh, a ton of stuff. FA Cup, I think we're going to hear his stories and find out what makes him tick. An absolute blast. As mentioned, Max Fawcett in just a moment right now wanted to remind you that the team at Bitcoin Well is uh, so important in what we're doing each and every day is our title and presenting sponsor. And we know for a lot of people, they play a really important role in helping you understand and cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. More and more people are getting involved right now based on a number of different trends, economic, political. Bitcoin has really been a story to keep an eye on early in 2021. Well, Bitcoin Well is centered and headquartered right here in Edmonton, but they have those Bitcoin ATMs all across Canada. And of course, you can find them online under the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Uh, Okay, we got Max Fawcett coming up in just a moment. Uh, Looking forward to this conversation. His piece in the National Observer uh, speculating around who might be named as Canada's next governor general. Sam Brooks is the technical producer of this show. He's saying former PM Joe Clark. What do you think? It's made it sound like I was saying former PM Joe Clark. I, it's not a terrible choice. Like it, it, it's someone, you know, he's he's very uh, Joe Clark. I mean, you got to remember, I'm not quite old enough to remember much of his political tenure, but he's just he's always very struck me as like a common sense sort of middle of the road, uh, get the job done type of guy. And it's not, you know, it's funny because I actually really like the idea of, you know, like an indigenous appointment to our vice regal, although that's a very strange can of worms to open considering our representative of the monarch is an indigenous person. Yeah, it would be a complicated. Yeah, but I also feel like that would be a wonderful step towards Canada's reconciliation and towards, you know, uh, our our sovereignty as a nation, quite frankly. Joe so, Clark's not a bad choice. You know I, what you, you maybe know? do, and you make yeah. a great point. I think the idea of like people will talk, you know, the Canada's history of colonialism, et cetera, and and you would say indigenous representation here as as governor general may be a complicated situation. You know who should make that decision is the candidate, right? Yeah. So you approach someone like, for example, we'll find out what Max has to say here, but someone like Perry Bellegarde, and you might say, would might you see this as a conflict, or might you see this as an opportunity? Where you could impact serious change. And that's just it, right? Because if you were to bring in someone like Perry Perry Bellegarde, I I totally believe that he will actually use it to move some policy changes and to actually change Canada's colonial relationship. As much as you could. Like, it's also really, people will say the role of the governor general is to kind of 
stay out of the news to a certain degree, follow a script and represent the queen. Let's get to Max. Uh, Max Fawcett just logging in been on this program. Okay, perfect. So we'll get to him in just a second. Uh, Max is you've read his pieces all over the place. Globe and Mail, McLean's. uh, Where else have we read him? National Observer here, obviously Uh, the Walrus. Uh, Max has been on the show before making his return on the heels of his piece for Canada's National Observer at nationalobserver.com. After Payette, the affable Joe Clark may be just the unifying governor general we need a good morning to you my man that the beard is is filling in quite nicely i only i only get to see you in snippets every couple of months it, it works yeah it's it's coming in there's a bit of a bit of salt and pepper in there now so uh yeah it's one good thing about COVID. i'm finding yeah with that comes credibility on the on the on the, on the front of political commentary you get a little salt and pepper in your beard people don't don't, don't treat you like a kid right um hey uh, max you've you've made a bit of a short list here we were kind of running through some of the names that you dropped katie lang is intriguing uh you you mentioned you know maybe beverly mclaughlin uh former chief justice of course uh, well known to albertans um maybe assembly first nations national chief perry belgard before we get into why you think joe clark is the choice why you've settled on him uh, why don't we start with some of the others uh, beverly mclaughlin i think would would fit the role for a, i've heard her name all over the place uh, a number of things qualify her uh, what do you like about her but why wasn't she your final choice well i mean she's an amazingly talented canadian um understands how power works in ottawa is familiar with the institutions uh, that she would have to be uh, representing. Um, and I, th- I mean, there would be no concerns about her background, no concerns about her, you know, how she treats her, her, her colleagues because, you know, she's been in the public eye for so long. So, you know, I think she would be a good choice. I just don't think she would address the problem that I am trying to address here with, with Joe Clark, which is that, you know, we have this obvious rift in Confederation. We, you know, Western Canadians, I got a lot of heat on this because people in BC said, hey, 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 hold on, we, we're not alienated, and fair enough. But Albertans and Saskatchewanians are upset. They, they feel like the rest of the country is not honoring their contributions to Confederation. And whether we think separatism is silly or not, um, this this train could leave the station uh, without us uh, being being ready for it. So this is an opportunity to to put someone in place who can do some deep listening, who can who can maybe bring the two sides back together and, and heal the Canadian family. And I think that's an important job right now. So uh, I'm always so tempted. Every time I talk to you, I'm tempted to, I, I want to, uh, I want to, every time I talk to you, I want to sort of like swerve off. Like you've just, you've just brought up Western alienation and people in Alberta and Saskatchewan upset because they don't feel respected. And my, my brain is saying to me, stay focused on the interview, stay focused on what you're supposed to talk about. But I'm so tempted to talk to you about that. You know, we talked to Jay Hill on the show just a couple of days ago, leader of the Maverick party. Um, you, that was a wild you ride. Asked one of my questions. Yeah. yeah, that's right. You, that's right. That's right. About about if if your question, if I remember correctly, was about if if provinces had the I may be misusing the word, but the sovereignty or the sovereign ability to to dictate their own movement of natural resources, would Alberta really want BC calling the shots when it comes to 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 access? Right. That's basically what you were assume what yeah. you were putting out there. Yeah. Which, yeah. which I mean, pretty look, good we, point. We all can look. At, we all can look at this issue and and see the silliness in it, but, but underneath it, you know, there's a really interesting piece in the New York times about um, how the QAnon people reacted to Trump, not getting, you know, not uh, being inaugurated uh, last week. And 
you know, the, the reporter basically said underneath all of these conspiracy theories was a deep sense of hurt and alienation. And I think, and I'm not comparing Western separatists to QAnon, although there definitely is probably a bit of overlap, but the, the, underneath their, their bad ideas are some legitimate feelings of hurt. And I think the rest of the country has kind of scoffed and overlooked, it, overlooked that for a little bit too long. Um, even Albertans within Alberta can, can be a bit dismissive of it. And I think, so we set aside the bad ideas, we focus on the hurt and try to understand where it's coming from. And that's a thing that a governor general could do. That is, that is literally a, 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 a role, a position that they could undertake uh, in their time. I th- uh, back to I promise I'll get back to talking about the governor general appointment in just a minute. Um, it, it is undeniable that Western Canadians, specifically in Alberta, um, paid high amounts of income tax. You know, I'd be so careful how I word this, because I think a lot of people have a real misunderstanding about Alberta striking checks to pay for Quebec's daycare. And that's just not the case or withholding equalization payments. That's not a thing. Uh, It's called not paying your income taxes. And if you don't pay your income taxes, there are consequences. So people are free to do that and free to deal with the consequences. People are hurting. Uh, People are hurting in Western Canada like they're not accustomed to hurting because employment numbers have been strong. Income uh, has topped the, the charts, has topped the nation. Uh, so, and people are not used to that. And I do not discount that at all, at all. I mean, there, there, domestic violence is up, rates of crime are up, suicides are up, uh, drug and alcohol use is up. Uh, it's horrible. It's terrible. And people are hurting. But what exactly are people, when, when, when Premier Jason Kenney talks about a fair deal, for example, to whip people into a frenzy, what exactly is he looking for aside from things like buying a pipeline, committing hundreds of millions of dollars to remediating orphan wells, committing hundreds of millions of dollars to to training initiatives and diversification initiatives? And uh, like, I know I might be preaching to the choir here and I'm trying to do it with utmost sensitivity. But what exactly do you think a governor general could do, aside from being from Western Canada, to actually address this at all in any meaningful fashion? I mean, the funny thing is the the governor general could do just as much as as the premier or the prime minister right now in terms of the solutions that Jason Kenney has put forward. You know, changing equalization does nothing for Alberta. There will, unless the economy here continues to collapse, we'll never see a penny of that, no matter how they change the details of that program. Um, you know, I, I, I asked my Twitter followers, specifically the conservative ones the other day, you know, because people are upset about how Prime Minister Trudeau responded to the, the cancellation of Keystone. What did you want him to do? Be specific. What was the thing that you wanted him to do that he didn't do? And the best answers I got were around, he should have said better words. He should have, he should have empathized more with our pain. And I do think there is something to that, that, that I think Albertans want to be heard and listened to. They want, they want to know that people in Ottawa, people in Toronto, people in, in Eastern Canada understand that they've worked hard and understand that they would like some support. And, you know, the problem here is that we have a premier who feeds their their fears. He feeds their misunderstanding of what is causing job losses in this province and what is causing the, the you know the shift in in the economic landscape. And and he blames you know the government in Ottawa rather than global economic factors 
uh, that are well beyond any of our control. So, you know, what we need are politicians who will tell the truth to Albertans and hear them out. And if Jason Kenney's not going to do that, maybe the governor general can. Katie Lang, pros and cons. I mean, the pro is that she's awesome. Uh, I, can, I can only imagine what would happen to Rito Hall if she lived there. You know, we'd have these oh, great man. concerts probably. If she would sing Hallelujah uh, at any point, uh, I'm in. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it would give a little bit of a, you know, like the way Adrian Clarkson gave a bit of a kind of rock star vibe to, to Rito Hall. I think Katie would do the same. I just, I find it hard to believe that she would be interested in the job. Um, you know, there's too many boring ceremonies, too many... Um, sort of stuffy, uh, you know, basically colonial attachments uh, for her to, to be uh, the one, you know, carrying forward. Yeah. Uh, Sam was making a good point when it, when it comes to uh, National Chief Perry Bellegarde, uh, who I think would be uh, phenomenal, uh, th that a lot of people, I think, would would perceive this to be somewhat of a conflict with regards to, uh, you know, the, the colonialism uh, that, that would come with uh, a meaningful exploration of the history of the monarchy, the history of Canada. Um, but ultimately, I, I guess my gut tells me that that should be up to someone like Perry Bellegarde to decide, not the general public. Um, you want to dig into that? Yeah, I think that it is a really interesting question. Um, I, I would love to see a, an exploration of replacing the governor general as an institution with, uh, with something that represents our indigenous heritage and our indigenous uh, leadership in this country. I think that is, you want to talk about reconciliation, that would be a step in that direction. Not, not just ceremonial purposes, but actual constitutional power uh, given to some sort of indigenous representative in this country. I think that would be a wonderful statement about where we want to go as a country, I'm not sure it's a statement that that the current prime minister can make in a minority parliament. I think it would be too fraught, um, and and I think he, you know, quite frankly, has has COVID and all these other things that 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 are sort of top of mind for him. That getting into a constitutional conversation like we had in the 1980s, I just don't think would be palatable. But I look. Would I love to see Joe Clark be the last non-Indigenous governor general? Absolutely. I think I think having that conversation about changing our institutions to reflect that part of our 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 country and our our national family would be it's long overdue. Two Beaver, uh, who, who who I know to be Indigenous, based on their correspondence with the show, says not Perry Bellegarde by any means. Uh, he's an assimilated sellout, that guy. Interesting. Uh, Unseen Stranger says Joe Clark, Joe Clark would be a good safe choice, but but even he would prefer someone else. Uh, Chris, uh, this is interesting from Chris Henderson, wondering about Edmonton's mayor, Don Iveson, uh, who is not seeking re-election in the fall. Shal's wondering about Kim Campbell, former PM. Um, Shal, this is interesting. Shal says not another gray-haired white guy. It actually, the, the recent history of the governor general has, I mean, you know, with exception of, of I can think of one, I think in the last five, right? Uh, I don't think there's yeah. been a bunch of gray-haired white guys, but but I, I'm not going to argue for gray-haired white guys. Um, many people are saying, you know, with regards to your suggestion of Joe Clark, it should not be someone who at any point has had a partisan political uh, connection or has held elected office at any time. Yeah, I heard that. I heard that critique from Ken Bosenkul the other day, who basically said that it would um, taint the the institution, and and you know we need to we need to protect the the sort of spheres of partisan and nonpartisan involvement. 
I mean, I, I guess my response to that would be that we had a governor general named Raina Titian uh, in the 1980s who was an elected member of parliament, and he was one of the best governor generals we ever had. So I, I don't think I buy the idea that elected officials, former elected officials can't, can't fulfill this role. I think if anything, they would understand the importance of it, the, 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 you know, the, the status that it has in our constitutional architecture. Um, and, and look, I'd love to see Kim Campbell uh, back in the spotlight. I think she's fantastic. Uh, um, and you know, for the same, she might fulfill the same sort of broad uh, purpose of addressing Western alienation as Joe Clark. I just think Joe Clark would be better at it. Um, you know, notwithstanding his old white guyness, which I which I acknowledge, um, he has skills that that not many Canadians have. He has a history that almost no Canadian has. Um, he has a relationship with the Trudeaus. He has, knows how to work with them. And, and he understands the West and particularly Alberta uh, in, a, in a way that, you know, someone 20 or 30 years younger than him might not understand. So, you know, there's going to be there's going to be some some hair on every name that we put forward here. Um, but how important you know, is the I, choice, I Max, for, for, for Justin Trudeau? Uh, a lot of people are saying these the scuttlebutt around Julie Payette was well known. If you asked anybody in Ottawa about what she was like to work with and and why previous uh, you know roles that she had held had had come to an end, whether they were rumors uh, or innuendo or otherwise, uh, how important is it with regards to restoring trust for the prime minister to make a good choice here? It sounds like an obvious question, but why don't you answer it? I, I honestly, I honestly don't think it's that important. I don't think most Canadians know anything about this or or care much about it. I mean, yeah. COVID is top of mind for everyone. We want to know when we're getting vaccinated, when we can get back to our old lives and who's living in Rideau Hall or who the governor general is just isn't, I think, of, of consequence to people outside the political game. Um, his choice here, I think, reflects a pattern of this government of really getting falling in love with an image and letting that drive the conversation rather than maybe doing their homework. You know, the it's hard to find me saying nice things about the Harper government, but they did a very good job of setting up a system where we selected our governor generals and our and our lieutenant governors. And it wasn't partisan. It wasn't political. We picked good people. We should go back to that. Um, but in the interim, you know, a safe choice might be the best play for him here uh, to, to get this taken care of and then move move on to the things that really matter, which, like I said, are, are getting those vaccines in people's arms as quickly as possible. Tanya is watching. She says, uh, I don't know if I buy a, a governor general having a unifying role, but it is an important pick in a polarized parliament. Uh, Tanya says, think coalitions, minority governments and the like. Uh, you can read Max Fawcett's uh, great work at nationalobserver.com. Uh, his piece on Joe Clark as his pick for governor general. It's great to see you again on the show, pal. And, and thanks so much for making time for us. Thanks for having me on anytime, Ryan. Yeah, you bet. Uh, a reminder here that, uh, you know, this show is on the air because of the support of our amazing partners like the teams at Dairy Queen of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park at their six locations. Uh, you'll be able to get Dilly Bar boxes, the boxes of six, two for one right now. Two for one on Dairy Queen Dilly Bar boxes at Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park locations of Dairy Queen. And they've got the Dairy Free Dilly Bars, too. So, kids, if you're watching Real Talk and you want a dilly bar and mom and dad say, remember, you're lactose intolerant, you say, ah, ah, the real talk is they're dairy free, mom and dad. And you can thank me later.
The team at Friesen Brothers so excited to have March 5th circled on their calendar. That's when they are opening their 15th Alberta store just off the Anthony Henday right here in Alberta's capital city. In the city of Edmonton, their Rabbit Hill location will open March 5th and will transform the grocery game. We're so excited as a family to check it out and you will be too. They, they, they're going to have craft beer on tap there at the grocery store. I've been waiting to see Sam Brooks' facial expression when I dropped that bomb. They've got a grill. You can go go pick up fresh burgers. They've got the fireplace there. You want pizza right out of the oven. Pizza and craft beer while your partner does the grocery shopping? Uh-huh. March 5th. Circle your calendars. Our next guest is very excited about that as well. She's the brilliant mind, the creative spirit behind CarrieSkelton.com. She also happens to be my beautiful bride. Making her real talk debut this morning, baby. Welcome to the show. Thanks, babe. How's it going? Well, I'm doing all right. Thanks. Morning's in full swing, and uh, of course, you're doing your thing. CarrieSkelton.com is where people can check out where you do your work. You're a huge. You and I. One of the things we do together. I've never tried to hide it. Uh, we watch The Bachelor and The Bachelorette together, and big news. Uh, Involving one of the places we love to vacation most. Bring us up to speed on the on the rumor and then the confirmation that happened yesterday. Yeah, so this there was a rumor going around yesterday. Suddenly, we found out that the Fairmont Jasper Park Lodge had just uh, closed all their bookings for nine weeks between February and April, and everybody's going, "What the heck is going on?" Like, we wanted to pop out. There's only so many places you can go right now in COVID. Um, that was an option for us, and now you know what's what's happening. Um, so you, when you start to think about it, you're like, okay, well, what celebrity, what show would need to block off that amount of rooms or that hotel for that amount of time immediately? I mean, you sent me the link. I'm like, oh, it's totally the bachelor bachelorette. Um, they film for six weeks. So if you think about it in COVID times, when filming the bachelor, you're going to need a little bit of extra time because all of the contestants need to quarantine first. You probably have a week of preparation. So that takes care of the nine weeks. Um, and then later on in the day, the National Post coming out and saying, yes, they did receive confirmation that that is the reason why the hotel is going to be closed to all the rest of us for that period of time. OK, so, so I, why? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's amazing. There's there's a lot of spinoffs here um, with regards to the, the the Fairmont putting a lot of people back to work, people that had been laid off. And and obviously right. it's going to be a big infusion of cash on the flip side. A lot of people are ticked off that the reservations were canceled and the JPL, I'm sure, is going to have to to smooth the waters there. But why Canada? Why do you think they're coming to Canada? You have a theory here. I do have a theory. Uh, I've been a bachelor, bachelorette detective for 20 seasons, proud to say. Um, and the true Bachelor Nation fans will know what I mean. You, we investigate the show. You know this, babe. We'll pause the show, try to figure out who the winner is as they're going along. Uh, so I was like, hey, why are they doing this in Canada? What's what's the deal here? There is a Canadian contestant on the current season of The Bachelor right now. She is a fan favorite. Her name is Serena Pitt. She's from Toronto. I'm thinking, okay, if they're filming in Canada, maybe it's because the next contestant, there she is, and she's amazing, um, is going to be the next Bachelorette. That season of The Bachelor is already done filming. So now they're in the, the planning stages and the pitching stages of trying to figure out, okay, who's our next star going to be? And typically, it's a contestant from the previous season. So to me, it just makes sense that they would, uh, that's why they're shooting in Canada, because she's our next Bachelorette, and I think she'd be perfect. Okay, so this isn't Bachelorette Canada. This is the Bachelorette period. 
well, I don't know, but I'm thinking <laughs> okay. that it is like the, the American version of the show. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So that, I mean, not that it matters to the JPL, not that it matters to Jasper. You just wonder about the exposure. Like if it's the big deal show, then, you know, more exposure. I'm, I'm, I'm just imagining like, you know, we've been on the property many times. Anybody that's been out there. I mean, it's perfect with regards to some of the activities and how they produce these shows. Right. You've got sleigh rides and snowshoeing and cross country skiing and all kinds. I mean, what an amazing opportunity to showcase that crown jewel. Exactly. And I mean, typically for those that are unfamiliar with the way that the show works, typically they're flying all over the world. Um, but now with COVID, they're still filming the show. So they're picking one location for the entire show to happen at. So they've been in the last two seasons with Tasha and with Matt, they've been doing them at just one resort. So the JPL is perfect for that. Everybody's going to have their own cabins. Um, the star of the show is going to have her own cabin. There's so much to do. Um, a lot of people questioning, like, why winter? But it's, you know, quintessential winter magic at the Jasper Park Lodge. So I think it's oh, the yeah. perfect location. I know there's people that are upset. I totally get it. A lot of people had bookings. They were canceled. Um, but you have to think from the, the JPL perspective, like you don't say no to that yeah. opportunity. Well, and I was I was I was thinking that you've got a I mean, you know, assuming and, and, and I don't mean to come across as sexist here, but but, you know, we've got, uh, you know, typically, let's say the guys are making the plans, let's say uh, for like Valentine's Day or belated Valentine's Day, there are thousands of opportunities right now for fellas to get in touch with their significant others and say, you know, I was taking <laughs> surprise. I was taking you uh, to, 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 I, I had actually booked yeah. this unbelievable cabin. Like the ridgeline I, cabin. Babe, babe, we had a ridgeline <laughs> cabin. I, I was stretching. <laughs> I've been putting away for a year. Um, but unfortunately our reservation was canceled. So I'm not going to be able to take okay, it there. So if your spouse comes to you with that, you ask to see the email confirmation just no. to double check. What? Yes, that, you do. Where's the romance in that? There's I no romance in asking to see the email confirmation. That's. Uh, thank you for your detective work, my beautiful love. And we will see you back on Real Talk, I'm sure, very soon. Yeah, love you. <laughs> love you too. You can follow Carrie Skelton on Instagram, on Twitter. You can find her on Facebook. And of course, you can check out what she does at carrieskelton.com. Sam, let's take a look at what's going on in the news this morning. Here's a look at the headlines. Just took a quick look at the Real Talk live chat. It is going off right now. Jess says, how about that chemistry between Jespo and the guest? Yeah, not bad. Not bad. After 14 years, not bad. Pfizer and BioNTech is pushing Health Canada to amend this uh, vaccine label. Um, So the maker, the researchers behind the vaccine, the manufacturers are saying, listen, we need to formally recognize that each vial contains six doses as opposed to five it would allow Pfizer to send fewer vials to Canada, but of course this could complicate the vaccination program. I really know nothing about this except for those red flags going up everywhere. We've been sending you five, but really it's six. Ah. Pfizer submitted the request to Health Canada late last week to amend the vaccine label. Um, the company's contract with Canada is based on delivering doses rather than de- delivering a number of vials. They say this is our opportunity to minimize vaccine wastage and enable the most efficient use of the vaccine. As you might imagine, there's stories all around the world here of countries competing, and in this case, even provinces, for access to these vaccines. And we haven't even got to the general public yet. Somebody's going to make a hell of a movie about this one day. 
as mentioned with Max Fawcett, uh, complaints uh, around the conduct of former Governor General Julie Payette are now including uh, this per, by the way, an independent probe. Uh, into into you know the allegations of a toxic workplace at Rideau Hall are claiming that Governor General Julie Payette's verbal harassment crossed over into instances of physical contact. This being reported today by the CBC, uh, these reported in testimony given to Quintet Consulting. Uh, they will be included in this final report. Uh, several sources with direct knowledge telling the CBC that Payette's workplace behavior went beyond screaming. Uh, beyond publicly humiliating people, including unwelcomed physical contact that caused some participants to feel threatened. And how about this? This is an interesting twist from one of the biggest brands in the world at the biggest spectacle in the world. When you think of Super Bowl advertising, you think of Budweiser, you think of their Clydesdales, right? Well, for the first time in almost 30 years, the first time since 1983, Budweiser will not be running a commercial during the Super Bowl. Instead of paying the money to air a Super Bowl ad, Budweiser says, by way of Anheuser-Busch, it's going to donate its advertising dollars to the Ad Council and COVID Collaborative to raise awareness of COVID-19 vaccines. Interesting. Now, Budweiser, of course, did still put an ad together. They're airing it. It's going to be airing this ad in the week leading up to the game. All the Budweiser masters of marketing. Here we are talking about them for two minutes, but it's an interesting story. Uh, of course, the Kansas City Chiefs, Tampa Bay Buccaneers will be facing off uh, just a couple of days ago on Monday of this week. Budweiser posted online its ad called Bigger Picture, which showcases inspiring and heroic stories from the past year during this COVID-19 pandemic. So there you go. Interesting move by Budweiser to get people talking. We're going to be talking mental health in just a moment. Uh, also wanted to remind you that uh, earlier, uh, it, it was yesterday, we started talking about whether or not churches should pay taxes. Um, Sam Brooks, the producer of this show, do you remember, I'm actually having a total blank slate memory moment here. What got us into talking about whether or not churches should pay taxes? It was a, someone on the, someone on the live, know. someone on the live chat will bail us out here and they'll. This from Neil, put the vaccine in the Budweiser and bam, everybody's vaccinated. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great point, actually. Uh, Heidi says, I think they're not allowed to say there's six doses because it's difficult to get the full six doses out of a vial. Uh, but if they operate as though there are six, they'll come up short too often. Heidi's probably bang on on that. Um, so, yeah, whoa, I don't remember what it was that got us talking about whether or not churches should pay taxes. But we did start talking about it and and it did sort of light a fire so to speak. And so I thought that I would put it out on my Twitter just with regards to an unscientific. This is not why station that's managing this. OK, it's, this is not a scientific poll. This is not in front of the real talk uh, uh, panel, so to speak. But uh, Sam, we can take a look at this here. I'll just bring it up on my screen here. So I put this out. Uh, we still, as you can see, have about five hours left on this. So you still have time to chime in. Uh, but we asked you, basically, should churches, and I said, et cetera, I'm talking mosques, synagogues, let's just say houses of worship. Uh, and you'll say, well, what about my tiny little uh, church in Glendon? Uh, or, or what about the massive mega church in South Calgary? Yeah, there's got to be nuance to the discussion for sure. Um, but generally speaking, do you believe that churches, et cetera, let's say houses of worship in Canada should be taxed? Um, as you can see here, about 5,400 votes, 5,385 votes right now with five hours left. 82% of respondents say, heck yeah. And then another 10% say, well, that depends. And so in theory, 
uh, you could argue that up to 92% of people think churches should pay taxes. Um, and we've got some really interesting comments here. Uh, and I want to get to some of these. Sam, if you can put that back on the screen, check this out. Like people are asking questions, very fair questions. I always love if you throw in a GIF, uh, there you go too, right? Like love that from Amy. Scream it from the rooftops, says Amy. Um, uh, you know, MD Lopez, well, do unions get taxed? Are they tax exempt? Says, I'm just wondering because if churches and unions can use funds to donate to political organizations, they should both be taxed. Also, if they're transferring funds to international organizations, that's an interesting point. We had some people pointing out yesterday that political memberships have been handed out at prayer breakfasts at their places. So that was an interesting point. Let me get into something else, by the way. Let me let me get into touch on something quickly on the fly. Or do we have our panel ready to go here, Sam? Okay, so I'm going to get to our panel in a second. Amy's here. If you can put this back up on the screen, Sam, I'm going to I want to point something out real quick, and I'm just going to do this quick. I'm not doing this to showcase Amy, but I want to touch on something. Uh a lot of people are filling in the blank on these Jason Kenney photos. See this? Because he posted, he broke the, the he broke the politician's code and he posted uh, a photo of him holding a sign. And you never do that as a politician or a public figure because people will do this. They'll they'll Photoshop in different signs and have you holding them up. I only say this, and I'm not making Amy feel bad. Um, I just wanted to say the reason a lot of you were putting me on those or you were putting Real Talk RJ, the hashtag, or you're saying listen to Real Talk. Premier Kenny wants you to watch Real Talk. I did think that was funny, and I did appreciate it. The only thing is, and I think it's worth mentioning to all Real Talkers, that the original sign that Jason Kenny's holding up is is around Holocaust remembrance. And I, I just happened to see it when he first posted it. And so I just wanted to, for everybody to kind of pump the brakes a little bit on that. I, I get that it's funny to have photos of Jason Kenny holding up signs that are, you know, pictures of, of you know, Devin Dreeshan with his Make America Great Again hat on at Trump's, you know, celebrations and things like that. Um, and, and, and I had a bit of a chuckle at watching some of them. However, in this case, just to be better humans as a collective, I think that we should pump the brakes on that photo in particular. It is around Holocaust remembrance, and I would hate to have that being used against each of you. I know that you're doing it in the right spirit. I know you're not aware of what that was, but sometimes here, that's why we tune into this show sometimes, because whether it's me or Sam or somebody else is going to say, hey, a quick heads up. And then we're all going to be better for it. So there you go. Um, let's say hello to our roundtable. I'm really looking forward to this. Of course, tomorrow is Bell Let's Talk Day. We wanted to reach out to three experts, uh, some with lived experience in mental health. Look at that. My man, Chris Johnson, is trying to find the best way to center himself in his shot. There we go. Chris, we need to see your beautiful face. My man, welcome to Real Talk. Uh, Chris is an official friend of Bell Let's Talk. He's a tradesperson turned mental health advocate uh, through his social media outreach at CJ Beats iPolar. Chris seeks to encourage people, traditionally men in traditionally masculine industries, to find their voices and speak up about their mental health. Chris, welcome to the show. Really happy to have you here. Great also, to be here. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Also wanted to to give a huge uh, welcome uh, to Ian Rabb, who's joining us, an interventionist with Edgewood Health Network. Uh, Ian's got uh, powerful personal stories uh, about mental health, addiction, and he's got a ton of experience working with governments and different groups across the country to find supports for people that need the most based out of Winnipeg. Ian, welcome to Real Talk. Thanks for being here. 
We've got you on mute, Ian, but I'll get you to figure that out real quick. No problem. We want to hear what you have to say. Uh, Dr. Speranza Dolget is the medical director at Sandstone Addictions Treatment Center in Calgary. Doctor, thanks for making time for us and welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Uh, Dr. Dolgetta, why don't we why don't we begin with you? Uh, we want to leave this uh, roundtable as free flowing and as open and 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 really, quite frankly, as as much of a, a naturally developing conversation as possible. So I want to ensure the three of you to jump in to build on what each other has to say. But as the nation will focus on mental health this week as part of this corporate initiative that has proven to be very successful in getting people talking and in raising money, oftentimes we find that that some issues don't see the sunlight that they need they're not in the spotlight where do we need to be focusing on when we talk about meaningful mental health initiatives in canada yeah i think we need to be starting from the bottom up right we often start at the top and start talking about all these big ways that we can make a difference when really we need to start at the bottom we need to start with initiatives that normalize negative emotion right, that make it okay to feel negative emotions and then to talk about it rather than pathologize it right away. How about you, Ian? Where, where, where does uh, conversation need to begin? Well, I think we've begun the conversation. I think we're about uh, 10 years too late, and mm -hmm. I think we have a lot more to do. Um, personally, I have been active um, since, uh, because of my own recovery and my own troubles. I've been active in this world for about almost 20 years now. And um, we are not moving quick enough. The stigma is still associated with mental health and addiction is still very real. Um, we see across the country, and it's not, it's, I could go province by province and give you statistics, but there is not enough access to mental health and addiction services across the country. Um, you know, we, I, I, I work for and I belong to a provider that provides private services, both mental health and addiction, inpatient and outpatient. But really, it's very hard for people to get access to the services they need. I was very fortunate 20 years ago that I got, I was brought back from the United States, but I had been living in the United States. I was a doctor. I'd lost everything to drugs and alcohol and mental health issues, ended up on the street and uh, came back and started advocating when I started realizing there are not enough voices speaking loudly uh, around this topic. It is not sexy for government to talk about. They do not invest, in my opinion, what's necessary to invest. And um, we're, you know, we, we've got a, we got a lot of work ahead. We have as much work ahead of us as we've uh, put into this point. Ian, I'm looking forward to, to digging into that uh, a little bit further. I, I want to get Chris an opportunity to to explain, because Chris, when you and I first met, uh, if I remember correctly, our very first conversation was due to your participation uh, in a documentary, wasn't it, on mental health? Uh, specifically, I think it was in the oil patch. Uh, and we had a, a wonderfully powerful conversation, huge audience response for people that weren't privy to that conversation. C can you tee up? how you got involved with all this and, and why you're sitting here with us on camera today? Um, yeah, the reason, first of all, I'd like to thank Ian on his powerful story. That was great. Um, yeah, basically how I got involved in my mental health outreach is uh, I had a buddy who was a journalist who uh, reached out to me and said that one of his former editors was doing an article for BuzzFeed um, about uh, the mental health crisis in Alberta's oil industry 
And so um, I was a keynote, or I did an interview with uh, with him for that. It was uh, Omar Moalam. I know he's a friend of the show. So did an interview with Omar, and uh, it ended up in that in that BuzzFeed article. Um, and then kind of from there, Bell Let's Talk got a hold of it, um, invited me to be a friend, uh, which is their basically their official name for their spokespeople for their uh, 2019 campaign. Uh, flew me out to Montreal, did basically the rock star treatment all day. Uh, photo shoots, video filming, stuff like that. Um, and then from there, I was lucky enough that Omar, who had done the BuzzFeed article, was doing this um, documentary for CBC called Digging in the Dirt, which was focused on um, on mental health, in the again, in the oil industry in Alberta. And I was lucky enough to be one of... Uh, Four people interviewed for that. Chris, let me um, let me cut to the chase. Why is it so important in your mind? I don't want to assume that any question is is an obvious one here. Um, why is it so important to talk about mental health in, as you describe them, traditionally masculine industries or, or or specific even geographic locations like Alberta's oil patch? Why is it so important to to hone in or to zero in on that specifically? Um, it's most important to talk about that because men don't talk about it. Men uh, were brought up with this boys don't cry mentality. Um, and because of that, people don't talk about their mental health and they're afraid to prioritize themselves over, you know, what they're, what it's perceived that they're in charge of, you know, you're in charge of going to work and feeding your family and, you know, putting yourself ahead is not something that is normal for men. And that's something that I aim to change is just breaking down that stigma and, um, you know, allowing Allowing it to be normalized to have that conversation as someone that identifies as a male. How important is this, uh, Doctor Dolgetta, to, to be to be specifically identifying um, some communities, whether it's based on on geography, occupation, gender, age, etc. Yeah, it's it's really important because we definitely do. Although it's a you know it's a global issue, we do see certain populations that are more at risk, right? More at risk for um, mental illness, more at risk for subsequent suicide attempts, completed suicides. And without the recognition that these groups exist, we can't really funnel the resources appropriately. So when you, when you're with, with, with regards to your involvement um, at Sandstone, do you see correlation um, it, with, with, as, as we talked about demographic data, if I can just, I think, boil it down to that, um, do you see some some real correlation numbers that maybe general society is unaware of that we should be aware of that might move the ball forward and helping us come to better understanding of what we're dealing with? Well, what we actually see is that mental illness and addiction doesn't discriminate, right? We have people everywhere from 20 years old to 80 years old come to our facility and I think that's an important message to send out because we have this idea of what a mentally ill person looks like or or is or what an addict looks like or is. But the truth is, it could be you, Ryan. It could be me. It could be um, the person on the street. And so removing those stereotypes is really, really important to understanding mental illness and addiction. Yeah. Go ahead, Ian. Well, I was just thinking about her, about Dr. Delgado's response. Um, and I work with, you know, as an interventionist, I work with a lot of upper middle class families. You know, it's very prominent to see the mental health and addiction 
publicly in families that are um, that are of lower income, uh, lower income. Um, but the but but it's very prevalent in upper in upper and middle class families, and they they have a very difficult time talking about it. It's very interesting. I have uh, worked with thousands of people over the years, and I get calls from parents, and the level of denial and 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 even misunderstanding at their level about what their kids are going through um, is, is always so apparent to me. Um, working with the families is often harder than working with the mentally the, ment- the the client that has mental health issues or addictions issues because they know what's going on. Families are are just lost. They are just lost about what to do with their loved ones. Couple that with not enough um, programs and places to take them, you've got very very sick families. And I so you know when I look at this stuff, I I look at the whole family sickness of mental health and addiction. I don't look at the individual identified subjects sometimes, because sometimes we have to help the the parents and the siblings and the spouses as much as we and children as much as we help those that are that are mentally ill or have or have um, subsequent addiction issues. I want to I want to read uh, some of the comments here from our Real Talk live chat, um, and then I'll put it in front of you, the three of you, to respond. Uh, so if, if something jumps out at you, you feel free to reference it. Lauren, uh, Lauren's watching in. He says uh, he's talking about your story, and he says these are my favorite types of folks. They you know they've lost everything, and then they come back and they help others. Uh, it gives a great deal of credibility. Um, Shauna says, you know, it's almost impossible to see a mental health professional without paying for it. Uh, very few are covered by, by provincial coverage. Most are private. Um, paying $140 an hour or more is not feasible for many who, who need it most. Um, you know, Dorothy says, I'm extremely worried about family mental health with COVID. Families need help. And, and, and a lot of times online or virtual counseling uh, isn't a good fit. Um, Terry says kids mental health is a huge issue as well. I've seen some tough cases lately. Uh, we don't have enough resources, says Terry. Um, you know, some random guy says men are conditioned from a young age that talking about their feelings and talking about their mental health is seen as weak. And the one it's thing true. that men can't be is weak. Uh, yeah, I think Exactly. I think the first thing out of those comments that are really important to acknowledge is coming out of COVID, we are going to see stuff that I don't think anybody's that we're even closely ready or prepared for. I think we have seen already the increase in alcohol and, and, and marijuana use and illicit drugs. I mean, I, I'm in, I'm working across the country, but in Winnipeg since last March, I had 53 people die of overdose in my life. Um, and you know, 53 people that I know and families I've worked with—that's that's a lot of people in, in less than a year. So I think what's going to come out of COVID, and I think some of your your um, some of the people listening to the show today really get that—that that out of COVID, we're going to see youth mental health a youth mental health crisis. We're also going to see um, an adolescent and adult me- mental health crisis and addiction crises that we are absolutely not ready to handle. Uh, yeah, and you know, Brian, I have a I have a very large family practice in addition to my work at uh, Sandstone. And since the pandemic started, I cannot even comment on how many people who were just on the precipice of mental illness have just fallen over that cliff. Right, the isolation, the disconnection, the lack of resources, and so you know, my practice went from being about thirty percent mental health to about 50 or 60% mental health visits wow. over the course of, of that. Yeah. 
So how do you how do you know? Um, oh gosh, you know sometimes I'll get halfway into a question, then I kind of go because I was going to say how do, how do you know that you're you know that it's become a problem or that it's become an issue um, for many people? It, it it will be obvious to them. It will be apparent to them. Um, and in and in the all things considered, in the wonderful circumstance, or at least let me say in in the encouraging circumstance. They're capable of and able to and have someone that they can reach out to. Uh, Dr. Dolgetta, which may very well be you or maybe a counselor like Dr. Rab, or maybe it's an advocate like Chris or someone else. Maybe it's a helpline. Maybe it's their next door neighbor. But somebody reaches out. I would imagine that there are many people that are suffering in silence uh, for some reason in shame, um, feeling like they don't have those resources. Uh, Dr. Dolgetta, I want to ask you specifically in particular, how do you know if that's you? There's there's very well, chances are, statistics would suggest that there are people watching or listening right now or that will hear the podcast later today that are to the point where they should be reaching out. Yeah, yeah and you know, I want to reference back to what Chris said earlier. Um, the one cohort that I really enjoy working with is men with mental illness and addiction because, you know, seven times out of 10, they will present with a physical problem, headaches that just won't go away, abdominal pain that is unexplained. I'll investigate them. There will be nothing. And it's this prolonged process of getting them comfortable, even acknowledging that there may be an emotional issue or that they might be drinking a little bit too much or, um, you know, that they might be feeling lonely. Again, all these emotions that everybody feels that if we are allowed to talk about it might not escalate to full-blown depression or anxiety disorder. But so, you know, in response to your question, how do you know? Look at these signs within yourself. You know, are you struggling with a physical issue that apparently has no root cause? Um, be honest with yourself, reflect, don't be afraid to feel and don't be afraid to talk about those feelings. It might turn out to be a completely normal emotion, but it might turn out to be the beginning of a downward spiral, right, that we can catch if we're just allowed to talk about it. Chris, it was, uh, I I was watching your your face, Chris, as I read that comment from the, from the, the viewer that says, you know, men are conditioned to not talk about mental health. Men are conditioned to portray themselves as weak. That's so important. I would imagine a big part of your advocacy specifically in the trades or in the oil patch has probably really seen that as one of the first barriers that a lot of guys have to get past. Am I right? Absolutely. It is. Um, I find that men, instead of experiencing the emotion of sadness, generally put their negative emotions into anger. And so you'll see a lot of guys that are just angry and pissed right off about things. And it might be, you know, they might be having a bad day, but they also might be having a bad day. And so, you know, that's just men aren't. And it's like what someone said in the panel earlier, men are not conditioned from childhood to to be emotional and vulnerable. And so we learn to um, put our negative emotions into anger and not sadness. And so that's, that's really one of the first barriers is being like, are you okay? Cause you're angry. Are you okay? Cause you got something going on outside of here. And Chris, that's 100% right. We see that at Sandstone all the time in our process groups. You know, we have a bunch of, of guys who are just, angry they're just mad at the world at everything and everything they feel comes out as anger and it tends to be such a relief for them 
when they're able to really express what they're feeling in a different way. Yeah. Ryan, I was going to say very interestingly, sorry for interrupting. You know, I came from a background, an upper middle class family with two parents, married 65 years. I have four university degrees. I became a doctor. I would like on the outside, you would have never looked at me as someone struggling with mental health and addiction ever. And most people were absolutely shocked in my thirties when I'd hit my bottom and, and I'd lost everything that it was me out of my friend group that actually uh, lost everything because I was such a successful and motivated young man. And what I learned is, and I, I, I won't tie up too much time here is that, you know, mental, like, especially addiction, addiction has nothing to do with drugs and alcohol. It really has to do with the, 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 the mental health issues that are underneath all of the drugs and alcohol. And there's a reason for it. And, and we really have to, like, in, I believe both in mental health and, and, and addiction treatment, we have to get to the root cause. And the root cause is very deep. And it's often, it often takes years to work through. Um, so, you know, very interestingly, I would have not looked like or appeared to be someone that either became addicted or had mental health issues as a man growing up in a perfectly normal upper middle class family. Um, you know, it just, it, it just, I was, I didn't fit the mold at all. And much to what um, Chris is saying, um, a lot of people don't fit the mold. And that's the one thing that we have to learn about mental health and addiction. It could be your brother. It could be your mother. It could be your father. We, you know, people are in such denial and they suppress this stuff they're so ashamed of it and um I, I mean when i came out publicly around around what i've been doing for the last number of years i had to go to my parents and make sure they were comfortable with me talking about you know i was involved in organized crime i was involved in the sex trade i, I had done a bunch of stuff that dr where drugs took you know i think i you, had to make, oh there we go i had to yeah i just had to make sure that um that my family was okay with it. And it was very hard on them at first because of the stigma. So we're talking about some stuff that's pretty deep. And I'm telling you, it hasn't changed in 20 years. Ian, like, what, what was it that, that, that occurred in your life? Um, you know, you say you don't want to take too much time. I want to reassure all three of you. We've got all the time we need here. So uh, what was there a moment? Was was there that tipping point? Was there something that happened that, that, either turned the tide of your life but but more importantly and i want to ask chris the same thing that that influenced you to say i'm going to start doing interviews i'm going to start speaking publicly about this i'm going to i'm going to basically open up my life as a book for people to read page by page what was that 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 took you there that's a that's a great question i had an incredible mentor he was about 82 years old when i met him and for the first time in my life he kind of explained what was wrong with me from the time i was a child so i was living like an imposter on the inside, I felt one way. On the outside, I looked good. I was played hot. I played high-level sports. I did very well in school. I was part of every committee. I was part of every club. But on the inside, I was dying since the time I was a little boy. I felt consciously separated, disconnected, not a part of, separate from, like my skin didn't fit, like I was an alien in this world. And why I do talk out about this is because I, when I recognized that my pain was not just in adulthood, that my pain and my addiction started way before the drugs and alcohol, and now I had a solution for it and a way to get through it and get better and share this with other people, I realized that it's really important for, for people to understand what the real problem is. I was so sick and tired of hearing 
government after government talk about, oh, now we're in an opiate crisis. Now we're in a methamphetamine crisis. We've got an alcohol crisis. I was so tired of that nonsense because what we have is a mental health crisis. We don't have a opiate crisis. Opiate is the drug that happens to be prominent right now, but it's not the problem. Opiates are never the problem. Alcohol is not the problem. Marijuana is not the problem. Let's talk about why people use these substances. And I realized I had to become vocal. And so started getting very vocal about it. I ran in politics, failed, but I ran. I got very public around what we could do to help people around addictions. And I've, I've stayed the course. And now, like I said, I, I work in the field. I've been working in the field for a number of years. I started a charity that helps people with mental health and addiction. And now, and I'm an interventionist by trade. You know, I, I'm an interventionist. Um, Ian, what is, what is that? What does that mean? Does that mean is that is that? Pardon my ignorance. Is that like the show where the person comes home from playing golf and there's ten people in the room and they're and everything's about to change? You, you, you're about you're, you know it's very true. So there's it, it, there's a wide wide range of intervention styles, and I use all of those styles. The one on TV is called Johnson, and it's quite harmful actually. It can actually cause uh, more trauma for a person that's already traumatized. But I do something called invitational intervention. But yes, I meet with the family. We come together. We write letters. Spend about two weeks preparing, and then uh, and ultimately invite their loved one into a conversation about what the rest of their life is going to look like. Uh, Doctor Intervention Canada too. Actually, you've been on the show. Yeah, I've been on the show. We could we could get it. I mean, if we wanted, we could we could just do a huge swerve and talk about that i mean i i I, we have all the time in the world here if if you guys want to get in i've 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 always wondered about the interventions like i i understand on one hand i didn't know we were going to talk about this today but so so i've not workshopped what i'm about to say here ian but i will say um on one hand i can understand why they would be necessary like people are just their lives are out of control whether it's gambling drinking you know cocaine whatever um and and people love them and they need to sort of and they've they've tried everything else and again and and I can also see how they might be um counterproductive. I always had mixed feelings about people and I would imagine they had to sign a release at the end of it so it could be aired but 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 having the intervention be entertainment. Um I always wondered about that but but it's probably also a big public education standpoint. Where where do you land on that? And then I want to ask our other panelists for they, they didn't know they were going to get asked this but hey it's real talk. Uh what's your thought on 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 the idea of that as a television product? Yeah, so first of all, I'd love to come back and talk to you and have people call in and ask questions. That'd be cool. Um if you ever want to do that, that would be really wonderful because I think we can help a lot of people. But I'm kind of caught in between the middle. I you know, I think the family so I I've had I have put people on intervention when families are at, at, at um, their, their final hour, they have no money, so they can't send someone to private treatment. I have got them in touch with Intervention Canada because Intervention Canada will pay for treatment for someone. So a lot of the people you see are people that can't afford treatment. So And there's no public resources for them. So kudos to Intervention and Intervention Canada for getting involved and having treatment facilities like Sandstone or Edgewood or Bellwood or any of these treatment centers partner with them to bring someone for free. So that's one positive thing that happens from the television show. Yes, we're sensationalizing someone's problems. And I, and when I watch the television show, you know, you, you've missed about 90% of what happens in the intervention, which is kind of sad. You know, two weeks is spent with the family to prepare them. The most important, an interventionist does not do the intervention. 
you really, it's the family's love that allows people to intervene on someone. It's the family's connection. So you're really, you're just a vessel as an interventionist to train and teach a family to start moving in the same direction. The biggest problem with addiction is you got a mom that's mad and a dad that's an enabler and a sister that wants to kill their brother and a, 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 another brother that won't talk to that. Like there are so many different relationships in that family, sick family dynamic that your job as a clinical case manager and interventionist is to come in and get everybody straight. So the TV show does some good things. I think it's great based, it's really educated people. Interestingly, um, when you watch, I've done over a hundred interventions successfully, uh, only one failed. And um, very interestingly, when you walk in, um, often people know the intervention is happening. Even they, they sense it for days before. Nah. It's very interesting. Um, very few will end up in, 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 in a failed, in a failed scenario. And most, in most cases, you know, I've had some great success. Dr. Dolgetta, you, you worked a ton in addictions and addictions treatment. Um, what are you, what's your thought on, on the, the, the method of intervention and, and then the television show, we should acknowledge it's two different animals, of course. Yeah. Um, well, I, I would echo a lot of what Ian said about it. I do like that they plant mental health and addiction firmly in the context of a person's life and relationships. And that's important, right? Um, it's important to see that recovery happens through a concerted effort um, of family members and friends and healthcare professionals. I, I, I do, I'm not gonna lie. It makes me a bit uncomfortable, the, the sensationalization of it all. Um, and, you know, they cut pieces here, cut pieces there, show people at their worst. Um, so I, I have mixed feelings, but of course, at the end of the day, getting people into recovery and getting people well is um, at the forefront. And I, and I do believe that at the end of the day, that's their intention, right? That's their, that's their um, primary motivator. So I'm grateful. Yeah. Chris, this is uh, when, when I wanted to circle back, uh, Chris, when we talked about, you know, the decision to to open your life up as a book and talk to other people about the challenges that you've faced. And, and, in, and in your case, again, I want to uh, ensure that people know where they can learn more about what you do at, at cjbeatsbipolar.ca. Uh, we can show people actually your website right now. I've got it up and, and, and you simply ask the question. And I love it. There you are in your hard hat, your safety got, you got your PPE and you say, hey man, you doing all right? And, and it's just like such a ground level approach. I just, I love what you have splashed there across your, your homepage, what sort of an impact has that had? Like, so, so what led you to the point where you said, I think I'm, I don't know that you were hiding it or that you were, uh, uh, you know, attempting to appear to be tough and strong. I don't know the specific background there, but what was the tipping point for you? And then what impact has it had with, with other tradespeople? Um, with me personally, just going back to what the, what my perception, and I'm, I'm just the guy that runs the crane that happens to talk about mental, mental health with this uh with what we've been talking about here is i think it all comes back to coping strategies and what people develop to take care of themselves and so you know watching tv and being like oh well that person's got a problem and i don't or drinking or turning to drugs it's all coping mechanisms to try and turn the voices off in your brain is basically how 
as a layman, I put it. Mm -hmm. um, going back to your question, though, um, basically, I hit, I was tired of developing coping strategies in my mind and hit bottom. And I was, I had had a relationship fall apart. And I was in my crane. And I was, you know, I was crying. And the people around me didn't feel safe. And so I ended up actually being removed from the project I was working on, which was one of the, the mega projects that we have here in Alberta or had anyway. Um, I was removed from that project for six weeks and sent to treatment. And luckily I was able to get a, you know, a psychiatrist and get diagnosed and stuff. And that's some, that's a luxury that a lot of people don't get is to see a doctor or see a psychologist because of the cost of it and the, the, lack of numbers of it like i had a conversation i was working working retail this last little bit just to make my ends meet and i had a conversation with someone who was um involved in the mental health side of uh, of our, our province's health services and they were actually being rerouted to covid tracing because they were basically like my boss said mental health has always been the bottom of the ladder and it still is the bottom of the ladder so that's we need to change we need to change perspectives everywhere towards it and, and make that I, therapy more more open and more available doctor Sorry, go ahead yeah i was just gonna say on that note chris you know i i work a lot with um with wcb for example and um it is only recently that wcb has really started to pay attention to mental health um, and to take seriously the notion that a person cannot work because they have major depressive disorder or a generalized anxiety disorder or bipolar. I mean, it, it was an upward, uphill battle just to get them to realize that these are legitimate issues that though we might not have, you know, objective lab tests or diagnostic imaging to, to uh, prove it, really exist and are devastating people's lives and rendering them unable to work. That's actually, that's one of my goals with CJ Beats Bipolar is to get that. I've actually been asked to sit on a panel that's going to develop a strategy to lobby to government to have it put in the OHS code because of that. Um, you know, in construction, we, we basically look at things in the 20 year cycle. And so the last 20 years, the focus has been on physical health and getting trained for that. And, all this sort of stuff. And so we're getting to the point now where, like you say, they're starting to realize that mental health needs to be part of that conversation. And so really, you know, it takes one year for something to become a policy. It takes five years for it to be implemented. It takes 20 years for it to become a culture. And so we're just at the start of that now. We've that's, got, that's a really. Sorry, Chris, I didn't mean to step on your toes there. My apologies. Uh, I'm going to give the mic back in just a second. I just wanted to acknowledge we've got uh, remarkable comments. I've, I've, I took five minutes away from our live chat and I checked back in and it's it's just amazing uh, some of the things that people are talking about. So I want to point those out. I want to put them in front of our panelists uh, very quickly want to break to, to, quite frankly, pay a couple of bills and, and remind you that when we're talking about holistic health and, and, and overall health, a big part of that is, you know, air purification, the air that you're breathing in your home. And we're grateful that Clean Air Club has not only audited our workspace and they've helped us ensure that we have proper circulation in here, but they want to do the exact same thing in your home. So if you go to cleanairclub.ca right now, you sign up, you give them the size of the furnace filter that you need. It's stamped right on the side of the filter that's right there in your furnace. You can see it. If I can find it, you can find it. Trust me. You enter the information, cleanairclub.ca. They drop the filters off at your door. They give you a schedule to stay on. So you ensure that not only do you save money, but you're also on that regular replacement schedule so your family can breathe easy. Find your 
easy breathing health and wellness at cleanairclub.ca. The team at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge excited about the 2021 Jeep lineup that includes the the fuel-efficient Compass. That's very practical. You've also got that Gladiator that everybody's loving right now. That's a real win in the Jeep lineup. The seven-passenger Jeep Grand Cherokee comes out this year. That's new, and it's going to be big for a lot of families, plus people that just need a little extra room, maybe for the dogs in the back. And then, of course, there's that beautiful Grand Wagoneer, the pinnacle of Jeep performance and luxury. You're not going to find a better Jeep selection than you will at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. Go see Scott and his team today. Right now, they can offer 0% financing up to 96 months. Our panelists, Dr. Speranza Dolgetta, Dr. Ian uh, Rabb, and uh, Chris Johnson uh, joining us. Uh, I want to get to some of the comments here on our live chat, our our real chat, live chat. Um, You know, Heavy D says, you know, dealing uh, people are people are painting a picture of some of the challenges they face heavy d says you know you're dealing with going off medications uh ideation of suicide uh, negative voices uh and so much more uh mark says you know it's a lot easier and cheaper for government to just let mental illness lead to drinking alcohol or consuming drugs so they can assign blame there um justin says you know it's also the public here though it's also the public allowing governments to run with a lack of mental health platforms and vilifying addiction. You know what, but uh, th- sorry for interrupting. No, you're not. They, they will They will tell you they're doing everything in the world and nothing ever ends up happening. Like the way government talks about this stuff, it's disgusting to me. That's why I tried to run. They will talk about how they're spending millions here and millions there and they're doing this and you see nothing change at all. Like wait times in public systems haven't changed in 15 years. And yet there's all this more, uh, they, they, they drag attention to it, but they don't, they don't put their money where their mouth is. You know, we don't, one thing they look at is that addicted people and mental health, people with mental health issues are not voters. It all comes down to that. And also, I mean, I, I have a, I have a firm belief that, you know, when, when an addict dies, it's one less person. We cost a lot of money to society. And um, the truth of the matter is, for every dollar spent on mental health and addiction, there's a $12 return. Government is really missing the mark around saving millions and millions or trillions of dollars um, by not helping people with mental health and addiction. If you think about the services that are necessary around mental health and addiction, corrections, policing, emergency room visits, hospitalization, treatment, theft, um, I could go on and on around the costs associated with mental health and addiction and, and helping people is, is, is it should be the number one goal. We just, I, I don't know when and how, cause I've tried absolutely everything both provincially and federally to kind of change the mind of government around this stuff, but it, it's a, it's a hard course. It's a hard course. I don't know what, I don't know what the opposition is. I don't know why. I know they spend all their health budget, so telling them they're going to save money if they do A, B, or C means zero to them. Um, but we really have to have some more specialized 
services and protections for those with mental health and addiction issues. Yeah, I, w- I want to point out to our listeners or viewers that are just tuning in, Dr. Ian Rabs chiming in from the province of Manitoba right now. We're getting a, a, a cross-provincial perspective here. Uh, Dr. Dolgetta, when we talk about government action on, on, on addictions treatment, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's even interesting. It depends on which government, right? You know, for example, you know, you had it here in Alberta, uh, Rachel Notley's NDP government was, was more inclined to support harm reduction, uh, things like supervised consumption sites. Uh, the Jason Kenney United conservative government is, is more prioritizing addiction treatment resources etc i mean that's a that's a government perspective that i'm sure a yeah, lot but are they are they really well you take yeah. it you I tell mean, us you tell us yeah yes. i mean they, they say they are right but then they go and close down one of our most important safe consumption sites and to have that tunnel vision that there is only one way to treat addiction there is only one way to overcome addiction is doing a huge disservice. And you know, part of the problem is, as a physician, physicians pay a lot of attention to prevention, right? Because prevention saves money. Um, It's an upfront cost that you put in, but it saves money. Um, And we're not doing enough around education. We're not talking enough about this at the right time to catch it before it becomes a huge problem, right? So, so what would doing enough look like? Like what would what would tangible, doable policy, and I don't even want to say policy, what would the playbook, um, we'll, we'll run the gamut here. So Spranza, we'll start with you. Uh, Dr. Dolcata, what, what would, what's one thing that we should start doing right now? One thing we should start doing right now is educating, but educating in a real way, right? You're not gonna, a 16-year-old, you're never going to get that person to not want to experiment with drugs and alcohol. You're never so demonizing it from the beginning or making, uh, you know, mental health, the subject matter of moral right and wrong is absurd. We need to have real conversation about real life issues and do it in a way that is not fear inducing. That is not judgmental. That is not, um unreal ian what's something we should start doing today so i'll tell you something and i can i'll task everyone with this um this this experiment you call and try and get a bed or a, a bed for addiction or you call and try and get a mental health appointment today in the public system even with jason kenny's investment i know canada i'm not only in manitoba i work across canada even with the talk of his investment of around more beds, you've still got a three or four or five month wait time to get a bed for someone who needs help with mental health addiction. So I, what I'll task people with, or I'll task you with, make a few phone calls and see how long it takes you to get an appointment to see a psychiatrist or a psychologist, or again, find the money to see a psychologist if you're in desperate need it's not there so it's my thing I, I think I, I think time and money has to be invested immediately I think that as an inter, as an interventionist and as someone who works in the industry the minute someone reaches out there should be access to something so right away you know put your money where your mouth is there's a way you know I, I know in the private private system we have beds all the time. You know, we don't, we're not 100% full. We're 90% full. There's always a bed available. If government really wanted to make a difference, put your money where your mouth is, work with private companies that do addiction treatment, and fill our beds with people that are in desperate need of help. 
Chris, what's what? If I could just, could I just backtrack from it and comment on that? Sure. Because a real, a real life example is that here I am in my family practice and I've got otherwise functional people, you know, they're functioning right at the, right at the tip of falling over, but they still have their job. They still have their family and they come to me and there is clearly a mental health issue. There is an opioid addiction and they need concurrent help. So either they're confronted with these addiction centers that will treat just the addiction, but only after they've detoxed. So they need to go to Renfrew and our population has grown by how much? And yet the number of detox beds have not changed in the last 15 years. And so they're coming to me. Now I'm thinking they need a concurrent program. They need something that's going to address both the mental health and the addiction. And that takes me to places like Claire's home, right? Except that I need a psychiatric referral for them to go, which guess what is like a three to five month wait. This person could be dead by then. And minimally, they're going to lose their job. They're going to lose their family. Their addiction's going to worsen. They might take their own life, right? I mean, the, the resources need to be there in a meaningful way, in the way that we need them, not in the way that the government thinks that we need them. You're, you're getting, uh, I don't, I'm sure you can see, but you're getting a, a, an ovation there from Dr. Rab. Um, Chris, if you were to impact policy, first of all, I want to commend you. Um, I've never told you this, Chris, but I was driving, I was driving north on uh, Gateway Boulevard in Edmonton, right by the iconic model Stanley Cup outside of United Cycle. And I looked to my right and there was a massive billboard with your face on it. And I just, I was like, yeah, I was driving by myself and I was cheering to see you on there. I was like, mama. Man, as I was driving by the billboard, um, but uh, like you say, and, and you undersell yourself. Your humility is 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 what I uh, you know admire about you. You say oh, I'm just a crane operator that got into advocating for mental health, but here you are telling us you're working to impact government policy. You're working on task forces and teams behind the scenes. If more of us were to do that as just citizens like you, uh, imagine how better off our world would be. If you were to, with the stroke of a pen, right now enact a law or write policy or allocate $50 million somewhere uh, or, or, or $5 billion somewhere, let's dream big, what would you do? Um, I think it goes back to what the other two panelists have talked about, where we need, we need immediate action. Like, we can't let mental health go by the wayside and have these wait times that we're talking about. Like, it, mental health is a right now crisis. Like, it's not oh, you know, I'm, I'm having suicidal thoughts right now, but they'll go away. Don't worry about it. Like, it's something that action is taken on. And so for it to be like, oh, well, you know, don't worry about it. I mean, thing that comes to mind for me right now is a couple of weeks ago, I read an article where a, a man went into uh, an emergency room in Toronto and the nurses bullied him out of there. He was having problems with his legs, but as soon as his rec chart came up and said, oh, you have bipolar disorder. They bullied him out of there. He crawled out of that emergency room because his mental health was stigmatized by the people that were there to help him. And so between more education on it and just having those resources available in a shorter time frame, those are two things that, that I feel need to happen. So those are huge. Yeah, you know, Ryan, I need to hear a justification for why we can have someone go into an emergency department with chest pain and they're found to have some blocked arteries, not causing the heart attack yet, but it's going to lead there. 
And that person can be in for an angioplasty within 24 to 48 hours. But somebody going in with a severe addiction that could result in an overdose within the next week has to wait five months to get into a program. I have been, Speranza, I have been screaming this tune for years, provincially and through every province and, and even federally. And it, it is, uh, it actually is disgusting. I have participated on, I can't tell you, I was on the illicit drug task force federally last year. I was on uh, end homelessness task force. I was on all these task force and we come to government with a bunch of recommendations. They said, we need to move quick. Give us about 10 things we need to do. And we give them 10 things and it takes them 17 months to even look at which one of those things they can implement immediately. Like give, give the system to people like Dr. Delgada and me and, and Chris, and I'll tell you, we'll make things happen right away. Give us a bank account. We'll tell you what's needed and we'll make it happen. The problem is, and I don't know if it's government or bureaucracy, I don't know where the block is, but we definitely have a problem between, I say always between the heart and the head. I'm the heart government or for policymakers are the head. And they, um, there's just this disconnect that, that this isn't important. I, I, I love your example, Speranza. I, I use it all the time, all the time. I want to be... Why? Ian, I don't mean to cut you off there. I, I Let me just say, I, I don't think it's inappropriate for me to point out that statistically speaking, uh, mental health uh, will impact more people than anything else ever will that gleans the headlines and gets a lot of the funding. So let me qualify to say, if your wife or your daughter or your mom is currently fighting breast cancer, this is not a shot at breast cancer funding and we need to fundraise for breast cancer. Like one in seven women uh, will will you know fight breast cancer in her lifetime. One in six men uh, will fight prostate cancer in his lifetime. One in five Canadians uh, will battle a mental health illness or a mental health health affliction at some point in their life in other words that's one person in your household or one person in your apartment in the apartment next to you or four people in the locker room when you're playing shinny hockey or three women in your book club or you get the idea you get the point i'm making you know uh, if we were to talk about you know uh, I, I hesitate to bring in employment here, but, you know, we, we get outraged at when a pipeline's canceled, at how many jobs are affected. Mental health is affecting one in five Canadians. And yet here, all three of you are agreeing that we're not taking it seriously with policy. I don't have a question here. I'm just making a point. It's totally unacceptable. It is beyond unacceptable. Absolutely. It is. Um, yeah. Just the number of families that I have to direct around to try and get them help and the things that we have to do to get them help are, 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 are outrageous in every province. I mean, thank God. I want to, I really want to say, and I do work. I, I mean, I have a charity that houses people post addiction, but now I work in the, in the public, in the private system. And I'll tell you one thing that shocked me more than anything when I first opened my, my, my re, my detox and treatment center is that Middle-class families were scrounging to find money to get their loved ones help. I thought everybody thinks that, that private paid treatment is for the rich. You know, we have this, this idea based on TV also that only people that can really afford treatment are the ones that are getting their loved ones treated in private 
healthcare and mental health care centers and addiction centers. But the truth is middle class people are scrounging daily to find not a little bit of money, to find twenty to forty thousand dollars. They have remortgaged homes. They will do whatever they can to find help for their loved ones. And that's a failure in the in the government system because they they're at their end rope and they have they, their their loved one finally asked for help and they absolutely need direction into some kind of private care. So thank God for companies like I work for, like Edgewood Health Network that owns Sandstone, and we have treatment centers across the country. And one of the things that we've done, and I'm I'm not promoting here, but I think it's really important to say in this COVID time. I am so impressed with this company's ability to move to online programs. We have intensive outpatients, two hours a day, five days a week, one-on-one sessions that are all moved to online services. So beyond people that, and they're much more affordable. So beyond people that need that actual detox and that actual treatment, for those people that are suffering, there are a lot. There are more reasonable online options. Um, that can help them. And we, we need to have more of that. And government really should be backing us, should be backing all of the private work that we're doing because we're doing their work. There are uh, remarkable comments being made on our live chat right now. And I, and I want to encourage people to, to read those, whether you're watching uh, live right now and you can scroll through or, or whether you're listening to our podcast later, go check out our, our YouTube uh, channel. You can subscribe to it. You can read these comments, some amazing testimony there. I don't have time to do it all justice. Um, Jeff Nachtigal is watching the show and, and he says, you know, Ian's on the money with what he's talking about. Jeff says, I still probably have PTSD just from trying to figure out how to get help for my family member. He says, this entire conversation 10 years later still makes me unreasonably angry. Um, I know Jeff personally. He is not an angry man. So for him to say this, I mean, as a matter of fact, he's one of the most gentle souls I know. He says, I am grinding my teeth right now uh, through this conversation. Now, let me say uh, we are coming to the top of the clock here. I can't believe how quickly this hour has gone. And I feel like personally, this is not a, the three of you have, have ignited a fire under us and, and you've pointed us in the right direction on a few things. But I don't want to leave people agitated and exasperated and pessimistic and pissed off. So so why don't we take this opportunity? Why don't I give each of you a, a final word here to, to, to focus ourselves in the right direction? To, to, to walk out of here with something like a like a, a mission that we're on today or whether it's a bit of encouragement or some enlightenment. Uh, Chris, I'm going to ask you to go first. What's what's something you want to leave us with today? Um, one thing I just want to talk to talk on here a little going back a little bit, Ryan, is your when you talked about these these canceled projects and things and the number one in five um, within my peer group, which is tradespeople. The number is going to be way higher than that. Like the job that I was scheduled to go on starting this year got pushed back to 2022 and now I'm hearing rumors it's been canceled. And so as, you know, as more and more of my peer group come out of these, these few plants that are being built, we're going to, they're going to start struggling and they're going to start struggling financially like Dr. Rab said. And so, you know, we, I'm not going to lie. I'm scrounging to, to feed my family right now, let alone, you know, I, I'm lucky enough that I was able to take care of my addictions myself, but most people can't. And so, you know, people aren't going to find 20 to 40 grand to, for that. You know, a lot of us are scrounging to feed our families and keep a roof over our kids' heads. So I, I would argue that your number one in five is, is higher. But 
just to, to you think you think it's more than you in other words you're saying it's more prevalent than one in five you're saying it could be two in five. Oh, guaranteed guaranteed right. even as high as one in three one in two like as people's financial situations is a catalyst for you know them to, their mental health to debilitate and so I've, if guys aren't working like i said i took a, i took a job working outside of my industry just just to help and make ends meet and you know it's it was a drastic pay cut and you know it's it was hard um but to go back to your asking for a positive message here at the end i always i always end my conversations with just letting people know that they're not alone and that if they have a conversation with someone they trust um be it you know a friend a family member or own own one of the helplines that has those people don't have don't know you they don't have any judgment on you and just have a conversation and it's just a huge weight lifted off your shoulders as soon as that conversation happens you're just like you know what it's out in the air i know people know now and i can start my journey to improvement ian let me ask you next what's one thing you want to leave us with empower us here my man so i want to tell you this I'm a almost 20 year survivor of methamphetamine use where I used that drug for 13 years, as well as every other drug and alcohol. And I think what's really important is that we have to leave you with a place where you feel hope. I know if I can get clean and sober and challenge my mental health issues and live as good as I'm living today and have the ability to help people, other people absolutely have that same ability. So two things, I wanna leave you with hope. There is no completely despairing place you need to be, but you do need help. And I will tell you this, and I'll, and I'll make this commitment to any of you, that if you want to email me or call me, and I will make sure that Ryan has my number and email, I don't care if you can afford it or you can't afford it. No one in this world should go through this alone. And I, I, I really want to tell you something. I mean, I blame my parents for years for my problems, my mom especially. She was never the problem. I give her as much love as I can today because I did. I blamed her. I thought she was whatever. It doesn't matter. That's a whole nother show. Um, but the truth is, is that that we can we can all come together and, and solve some of these issues together one at a time. And I'm available to do that. Our family has been reunited. And, uh, and I, I get off. I get excited from helping people. I love seeing families reunite. And I love seeing like the blues of people's eyes come back when they finally realize they're not alone, as Chris said, and there are opportunities for help out there and we can find them. Dr. Dolgetta, we'll give you a last word. Thank you. What I want to say to anyone who is out there struggling, you are not alone. Hmm. You do not have to do this alone. And for the people that are loving people with addiction and mental health, don't be afraid to talk about it. They are waiting for you to ask them how they're doing. They are waiting for you to reach out. You're not going to offend anybody. You're not going to alienate anyone. We need to treat this as a community issue. And I echo Ian, if you need help, reach out. We're here at Sandstone. I'm here at Riley Park Primary Care Center. We can help. You're not alone. I'm so grateful that the three of you uh, agreed to, to make time for us today. Uh, you you have uh, inspired our audience. And, and in some cases, uh, you know, you've accomplished, I, I think, something that's difficult to do, which is is bringing people together in a common focus. This is not a partisan issue. It's, it's it, There's a political element to it. 
but I think it's something that we can all agree demands to be addressed. And I'm grateful that Chris Johnson and and Dr. Ian Rabb and, and Dr. Spranza Delgett have agreed to join us. Uh, all of their contact information by way of their Twitter handles is included in the tweet that I sent out around quarter after eight this morning. Much love to the three of you. And thank you for this. Thank, thank you. Pleasure. A reminder that uh, tomorrow is Bell Let's Talk Day. We want to do this ahead of time. We're not affiliated with it, but uh, obviously proud to support mental health initiatives across the country. We want to hear your stories, and we'll get to more of those, uh, of course, in the days, weeks, months, and we hope years to come. A reminder that the team at Grand Dog Essentials has joined the team of Real Talk Builders, and we're thrilled to have them here. Uh, my family's been customers of Grand Dog Essentials uh, for several years now. We trust them with their quality raw food to feed our pups, our Boxer Moses and our Lab Monroe. Uh, they've got different options, including beef, chicken, turkey, bison, or tripe. You can check out granddog.ca for all the products available. Plus, their staff, family-owned and operated, by the way, certified in raw nutrition, so they can provide you that informed support. Is it the right move for you and your dogs? Are there dietary concerns? They can help you sort it all out. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram at Grand Dog Essentials. And again, at granddog.ca, if you use the discount code REALTALK, you'll get 10% off your first time order. Also excited that Eden Landscaping has joined our family here of Real Talkers. You can find uh, the magic that they do. You want to see some of their projects, landscapeedmonton.ca. They design outdoor living spaces. They want you to make the most of your front and backyards. It might be a smaller project like flower boxes. It might be a total overhaul. Don't go with what your builder gave you. Ramp it up with the team at Eden Landscaping. Again, landscapeedmonton.ca. This next conversation, I ask you to buckle your seatbelts. I have no idea where this is going to go. But what I do know is that I am an absolutely enormous fan of this fella. Before we bring him live on the air sam brooks is like doubled over in laughter right now can you roll it i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna provide some voice over here uh without compromising the quality of the product you remember this remember this the the, the calgary flames edmonton Oilers matchup last year when everybody was waiting for zach cassian to fine-tune Oh, look at the fans are excited like that guy with his popcorn. Everybody was excited for the tuning that was going to happen when Zach Cassian took on Matthew Kachuk, the turtle. And then and this guy, the crowd. Whoa. Hey, that popcorn's expensive. So people start getting pretty excited, right? Because this this fella's out of nowhere getting the crowd going like nobody else can. So the whole place comes alive. I know because I was there. I'll never forget this moment. And then there he goes, ladies and gentlemen. This is what Cameron Hughes does best. As a matter of fact, this is Cameron Hughes' job. He travels all over the world, literally tossing sweaty t-shirts into crowds of thousands of adoring fans, risking it all. Anybody else getting nervous right here? <laughs> he gets people going like you wouldn't believe. He's done it in the National it's Hockey League. He's done it in the National Basketball Association. He's done it at the U.S. Open in front of some of the world's biggest tennis stars. He is the author of King of Cheer. And Cameron Hughes joins us now live on Real Talk. My man! <laughs> 
I don't even know where to begin. What do we do? Let's go. People, That's the greatest intro I've ever had. Thank you. People were so worried when you released the video yesterday that I tweeted of, with all the hockey sweaters and hockey. And someone, I, I think somebody said, this guy's going to go into cardiac arrest before the interview if we don't calm <laughs> him down. Your physical threshold for excitement is like none I've ever seen before. Well, I wanted to temper it down today. You know, I, you know, we got to, we got to bring things down and then we bring it up at the right time. As yes. you know, right. Well, you're a master. It's all about being, it's about being the spark at the right time. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. So we're going to talk about the book. We're going to talk about your whole career. Um, you've provided us some early footage of where this all began. I read your book. Thank you for sending me the advanced copy. This all, this all starts kind of back in 1994, right? Can you, can you take us back to the beginning? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of living in my dad's basement, in and out of university, like as much as Frank the Tank, <laughs> trying to figure out what to do with my life. Um, my buddy says, hey, do you want to go to the Senators game that night? He had great seats. The team was horrible. And there I am that first night in the aisle, jeans on jeans, as we do in Canada, <laughs> dancing like a lunatic, no idea what I'm doing. And the crowd's looking at me at first, like, what is happening? And then, Ryan, they just came along. They were like, Finally, someone had the nerve to get this sleepy, dead, quiet crowd going. Thank yeah. you. Right. Yeah. And there were, there, I mean, there were no bells and whistles back then. Right. Like there are now. And the place went nuts. After the game, a guy from the Senators, a young intern said, hey, I want your number. I'm like, what, what for? And he's like, we want to bring you back. And I'm like, what do you want me to do? <laughs> And here we are. So not like not you were not a professional at the time. This was just you finding you. There was just a vacuum in the arena that you needed to fill with some excitement. Well, yeah, I mean, I was the crazy guy in high school. Um, you know, I didn't make my big sort of thing is I didn't make the high school basketball team. So I went and cheered them on. But I always like painted my face and then I wore a watermelon on my head at university. Shocking. And then I was a mascot for a baseball team in Ottawa. So my whole thing, Ryan, is like I took my mask off that night. I just was like, go for it. Nothing to lose. Let's have some fun. So when did you so the Ottawa Senators, I, I think if I remember correctly, they offered you tickets to like six games uh, and they gave yeah. you some gear to wear and probably some things to, to, to give away. But but there's a there's a long uh, there's a there's a big chasm that exists between a, a hockey club giving you a couple of free tickets and now traveling the i mean i've run into you in airports i mean you've i'm just gonna yeah. say I, I i'm gonna reveal i have a slight conflict of interest here because i was in las vegas last february and i shot you a text and you turned you gave me the key to the city for like three straight days in las vegas so i was like i was just walking around dropping your name and people were treating me like i was jay-z but so so you've got you got this life where you're flying all over the literally all over the world now doing this how, how do you go from a to b well, you know, I mean, in two words, show up. And and, and I'm, I don't mean to say that as a cliche because I, I did it in Ottawa. They didn't make the playoffs. I showed up in Toronto. I wanted to see if the crowd was different in Ottawa because they weren't that good, the team. And then Toronto was really good in 95, 96. There I am on CBC. Uh, they were making fun of me at first, and then they came <laughs> back and said some nice things. And that was the turning point where I was like, well, if a crowd in Ottawa, Toronto is the same, why not try this in other cities? So I just literally showed up in California. I went on a road trip when I was trying to finish my degree. I showed up at all these events at first, just with my own t-shirts, literally check this out. Dancing guy t-shirts. Oh, wow. And I would just, that's from 1995. I would brought my own t-shirts. Nobody was throwing t-shirts at the time. There are no t-shirt cannons, nothing like that. I know you've got a great arm yourself. Thank you. And I just, and then so all these teams started to say, wait a minute. 
maybe this guy would be good at our games. You know, it just kind of happened. And then I got a booking agent who represented all these weird acts. And I was like, what? There's an industry here? <laughs> this is crazy. So this My dad's must- like, uh, what? <laughs> but it's but but it's a thing. I mean, it's undeniable that it's a thing. I mean, you've made a great career out of it. What's the secret between you and oh, maybe you don't want to reveal it, Cameron, but but the secret between you and all the other if I can just cut straight to the chase, all the other drunk maniacs in the stands like like what's your X factor? What do you have that they don't have? Well, I think that's really interesting. And ironically, I studied sociology. <laughs> um I think that it's two, a couple of things. One, I'm sober. <laughs> yeah. um, no, but is the timing. I, it's timing. You know this. You're, you, you listen to your audience and you've got to know when to get up, the, get up and get the crowd going. You've got to know when to let them own it. You've got to know when to join in. You've got to know when to tease them a bit, to push them a bit. And I think the key is timing. And um, I've learned to study crowds over the years and when when to do it and when to hold back. And I think that that's what's allowed me to, uh, you know, continue to do this because teams get it. Teams are like always asking me, when should we go? What should we do? And I always want to be that spark at the right time when people need it. I don't <laughs> I just, know what was going on in that shot. Can, can, <laughs> just, uh, can you just, can you do what we, what we do to the players post game? Can you just take us through this Cameron? Tell us what's going on. What's going through your head okay, right now? So, yeah. There's a timeout under 14. The camera comes to me, that's in Vegas. They let you do anything in Vegas. They've got this permission to go crazy. The camera comes to me and I get up and I just go nuts. And as you can see, the fans all stand up and they they, they want to party. There's this permission just to party. I'm just a goofball that's ready to go. I asked the guy beside me to hold my leg or I'm going to fall. <laughs> I've been hospitalized eight times, Ryan. It's not healthy. Literally? And then I go for the big reveal. <laughs> And then I just see how quickly I can take off the shirts and I start stripping. <laughs> My high school guidance counselor's like, I, I said you could follow your dreams, but I didn't make, mean you could be a stripper. What's what's the most number of t-shirts or jerseys that you've worn at any given time? I've had 26 jersey uh, t-shirts on at the same time. Here, everyone gets a kiss with their t-shirt. I can't wait till um, COVID gets out of here. I cannot wait till this pandemic know, right? is over. This I am watching this and my heart is full. It's crazy. Just like people want to, my whole thing, Ryan, is really, you know, it's about connecting people and, and, and you do it in a big way there that you're watching. And then after I do this, I go to sections and I do it in a smaller level of, of, you know, comedy, of banter, of getting kids up, getting adults up, doing the whole thing, getting the fans to be the stars of the show. Right. This is amazing. Oh, wow. I, how ha- how get- Cam, how is, how is, how have crowds changed um, over the years, because it, it's funny, like, you know, I work for Oilers Entertainment Group. Um, we they, They've got an award winning team. Some of the things that they've done at OEG, obviously Vegas does an incredible job. The expectations now with the Kraken, with Kraken in Seattle, I mean, it's going to be people are expecting them to just blow the doors off the fan experience. But fans are a little bit. Uh, I'm speaking on, on behalf of only me right now. Um, fans yes. fans are a little spoiled right now. Like I, I see people tweeting like, "Oh, that in game, you know, that team's in game program sucks." And I'm like, "Dude, like 15 years ago, there was nothing. There was nothing, nothing. at all. How have I, how have crowds changed?" Well, I mean, that's a really interesting point because I started off and there was no jumbotrons, there was no big video boards, there's no game entertainment departments. And now, you know, we're, we, I truly believe we rely too much on our video boards. You know, I did a game once for a big NHL team 
And the director of entertainment came in and said, thank God you're here. I'm like, what do you mean? You've never said that to me. He's like, well, it doesn't matter what I do on the video boards and these fancy videos and edits and cuts. When you get up, the crowd pops. And I think that uh, a lot of it has to do with human interaction. Like when you get on the mic and you're talking, you're hyping the crowd up when I'm throwing t-shirts out, when there's an element of the human connection, people respond to it. I mean, that's why I've been doing this for 27 years because there's the human element, you know what I mean? Um, and I think that's a really big part that I think teams have depended so much on the Jumbotron. They've depended way too much on sponsorship. I, I think there should be a law in sports. You can't do a promo on your video board for more than 60 seconds. Nobody cares. Right. Um, so it's about making the fans come alive in, where, in that way. Where are you here, Cameron? Where's this? That Singapore sevens. That's rugby. Yeah. Canada rugby. That was unbelievable. That was uh, international rugby. They flew me over. They had no idea what to expect. Uh, and it was uh, unbelievable. Do you have <laughs> a- jumping off the railings and dancing with fans? Security's like, okay, we'll just let him go. Yeah. <laughs> He'll wind up in the hospital at some point. Um, do you yeah, have, yeah. so you've worked. Uh, and this is the moment right here, by the way, this is the greatest moment of my career oh. right here. Oh, okay. Here we go. Um, Take in us terms of it. like the most spontaneous human moment where I'm at Canada sevens rugby in Vancouver, 30,000 people. It's the end of the day. And then I feel this energy behind me and I move to the side and Malcolm, an 18 year old boy from British Columbia with down syndrome just says, you know what? Move over, pal. I'm going <laughs> to shake things up. This is look, incredible. I mean, this video has 10, 15 million viewers or something. It's crazy. And he just keeps going. He's just like, yeah, I got this. Don't worry. And as you can see, everyone's dressed up and he's just going for it. And I show this video at all the talks that I do and I end on it. And it's all about getting out of the way. It's never been about me, really. You know, it's about getting other people to to have fun and to let loose. And Malcolm showed us all what true spirit is that night. This is amazing. I haven't seen this video before. This is incredible. Look at his face. Yeah. Yeah. Look at every single person watch this, watching. Watch this. this is the best. Watch this. He's like, I got it. He's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's and incredible. I him, I, I've Instagrammed with him a few times. We've chatted and we, we talked once. And I said, what were you thinking that night? He said, the fans wanted me to party with them. <laughs> yes. And I was like, oh, my God. Thank you. Right. Do you have any and data? He just keeps going. Do you have any data of like uh I mean now I'll acknowledge that you've worked, you know, you've worked tennis, you've you've worked soccer slash football, you've worked, you know, NBA, NHL, you've worked a ton of different stuff. So I guess I'll have to let, let me just hone it down to hockey. Um, do you have data on on how soon the home team scores within a Cameron <laughs> Hughes segment or promo? Well, a lot of teams have said, you know, what's the return on investment with bringing me in? And I'm like, I don't know. Your fans will have more fun. (laughs) I did Buffalo Sabres once for 10 games in a row and they won every game. Is that right? (laughs) And oh, yeah, it was crazy. There was like a snowstorm. They're like, we got to get them here. Get them a tractor. (laughs) Um, 60 at one point I was tracking. It was around 65 percent of the games that I could track. The team was winning. Yeah. 65 in there. 
which is pretty good. That's that's phenomenal. A team would take a 65% winning percentage. I don't care if you're who you are. You'll take that. Um, Cam, you said uh, one of our one of our uh, viewers this morning, first of all, like Neil's watching. He says, Cameron has been so much fun at Oilers games. I can't wait to get back to a live sporting or music event. Um, I'm trying to find this. Uh, Scott says this guy has like the best job in the world. He gets to just have fun and make people laugh. Um, Steve is watching, says there's nobody in the world like Cameron Hughes. Uh, I love this. Some random guy says, who needs alcohol when you're drunk on excitement? I agree. Um, we're coming right we're, we're we're coming hot out of a segment on addiction so my comment about drunk fans was probably fell flat a little bit um but but this from ab ab says i wonder how cameron wakes up in the morning um you in your book you talk it's not all sunshine and lollipops it's not all roses for the king of cheer you've had difficult circumstances i mean you know i think of your mom i think of your dad how do you rally uh, yeah, here we go. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, when I was 16, um, you know, came home from school one day, I, like I said earlier, I was trying to make the basketball team. And my mother told my sister and I, she'd been diagnosed with breast cancer and she was like, I'm going to beat it. Don't worry. And, um, you know, it's a longer story, but she had a two year battle and she lost her battle to breast cancer. And, you know, in that moment, you realize, you know, what's important and all those different things. But for me, it was like, that's why I went to the games and started cheering. And that's why I do what I do in the sense of, my mom, Ryan, she was all about connection and heart and, and, and real, like real connection. You know, she was a nurse. She truly cared for people and I truly care for people, you know? So yes, this time, you know, for me alone has been hard because I'm not really connecting with people in that way. But, you know, when I wake up in the morning, I have one mission. How can I put smiles on people's faces? And that was a gift my mom gave me. You're going to get me going here. But like, and that, you know, it's not always easy, by the way, and it's BS to think that I wake up every day and I'm running down the street and doing cartwheels, but that's my mission every day. What can I do to bring a little smile, a little cheer to you? And, um, you know, I've had some negative backlash in my life. And at the end of the day, I look at the kids smiling and I'm like, hey, we're good. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's what it's all about. You had a, you had a challenge get, getting ready to work a game. Um with regards to your dad's health. And I can't imagine I, you know, let me say this. My situation is not even close to what yours is and we'll get you to, to tell, but I'll tell you, um, you know, you and I've worked together a little bit at Euler, not never sure. together. Really. We've kind of worked off of one another. Um, you've made my job easy in, in getting the crowd going and getting the crowd excited, but I'll never forget a phone call that I got last May, uh, right before I was about to go out. And, uh, my dad let me know that he'd been diagnosed with Parkinson's and it was just, it was, and I was like on the microphone, literally 90 to 120 seconds later, maybe three minutes later. And my inside was torn to shreds. And, uh, and there I am talking about whatever I was talking about and making noise and the loudest fans and, and you can compartmentalize a little bit. Um, and, and to me, I was like, well, I'll work the game for dad is what I'll do. Um, yeah. what do you, how, how do you wrap your mind around it? Well, I mean, I think it's a, you know, we all go to work, we all go to show up in our lives in different circumstances every day with the highs and lows of life for the reality is, but for me, it's like in that two to three hours, I need to be in the best state possible to give the fans the, the, the laughs, the fun, uh, teams are paying me, teams are paying me well now that I, sh I travel and I get there and I'm like, okay, I need to be on. And whether you're sick or whether you have personal things that are going on, I somehow find a way I find a switch, Ryan. And, you know, like you said, that moment and that night for you, I mean, must've been so hard and it happened to me. My father had a stroke uh, five years ago and my sister called and said, you got to come home. And I'm like in the hotel room, and there's no flights. And I, I'm supposed to perform for the Minnesota Wild that night. And a friend of mine calls me and he says, 
you know, you can sit in your hotel room and, and, and just wait for the next flight the next morning, or you can go put a smile on 18,000 people's faces. And the wild said, you know, your family here, you do what you need to do. And you know what I did? I went and did the game. Hmm. I still have the t-shirt from that night. And I still have the memory of going, you know what? My dad would really have wanted me to do that. And I really believe in that moment. And that thought is the cheer you give is the cheer you get. Because I, when you were, when you were about to host, you probably needed that crowd more mm -hmm. than you thought, right? Yeah. They gave you energy back that allowed you to process the, what you just happened, the news you just got. Yeah. And it helps you, you know? It's an amazing symbiotic relationship. What I, what I think is uh, one, one of the things, I, and I want to be very clear here, I'm not, you're a legend. Uh, I'm not comparing what we do. This is just a conversation. But 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 when I'm getting ready to do something for the Oilers, waiting for that TV timeout, for me, there's a lot of interaction with the fans, right? There's a lot of what I think is really neat about what you do is that you're the sleeper. Like you're you're in the crowd. They have no idea what's about to happen, right? And so it's a totally different scenario because for a lot of people especially people that are seeing you for the first time you're just some guy you're like a fan that all of a sudden has come alive do you get to a point where fans start to like where you find in certain cities like you say the minnesota wild organization says to you you're like family you've got fans here within the organization the oilers organization on our live chat that are t that are referring to you by your first name um you must connect with fan bases in a pretty special way yeah, I mean, after a while, you 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 know, if you don't care after being in a city, you know, Cleveland, there's a good example right there. I did 45 games or 50 in, in a four year span to the point where they I, I had a float in the parade with Machine Gun Kelly, the rapper, <laughs> um, you know, and so you create this thing where, you know, if you come into a city for one night, you leave and you never come back. It's obviously different. But yeah, I mean, I you care. I genuinely care. How much popcorn? Um, have you, how much popcorn have you spilled over the years, by the way? <laughs> I, I should make a list of the teams that allow me to throw popcorn and the teams that don't. And you'd be like, oh, come on, get over it, right? Who doesn't? Who's, who is the most? No, I can't. That's it. Because what if it's I can't? That's a bad question. I was gonna, Well, I'm going to ask it. Who Who's the most? But it doesn't make sense. The question's a bad question. Who's the most yeah. uptight organization to work for? However, if they're too uptight, they're not hiring you. So it's kind of a I guess that's kind of a weird question. Well, I'll answer that question in a different way is I say to them because Every team in hockey and NBA, and I'm not saying this, I'm really not saying this to brag, but they know who I am. They know what I've done. I've done all-star games. And so I say to them, they're not, they're not all going to bring me in. I get that. And I'm totally cool with that. Right. At the beginning of my career, I, I didn't understand rejection. I'm like, what do you mean? Why wouldn't you have me? Right. Yeah. But I always say to teams, if you're not going to have me bring in, bring in something to do something, bring your fans alive. Don't just depend on social media posts and boring videos and like do something. Right. And I think that organizations that have won over a longer period of time that I've watched from minor league teams that keep promoting, keep pushing the experience. They're also winning at the gate. And a lot of them are winning on the ice or the, or the court because they, they push it. Cam, can you I don't know if you're if your uh, camera is fixed right now, um, but are, you are I'm imagining this room that you're in. Can you can you like do a slow twirl? Because I'm seeing the, the background behind you and I suspect it doesn't. Oh, wait, do you have a cardboard cut out of yourself? <laughs> no, I do not. Not that yet. Was from the AO Pepsi Canada Go campaign. Uh, yeah, this is uh, my oh, room here. That is an old school flame sweater. Yeah. So so everyone more is, behind me. Everyone see the ones behind me too. Yeah, of course we go. do. 
So these all tell a story. Yeah, they all tell a story. Um, Is there what as you look around the room right now, what's one that just jumps out at you? What's what's one sweater or one T-shirt or scarf that's super um, right there? Belfast Giants. Can you see that one? Yeah. So they flew me over a guy. Obviously, he was from Alberta. He was from Calgary. A guy named Todd Kelman. He was the GM of the Belfast Giants. Um, Theo Fleury played there one year during the lockout. And they brought me over, Ryan, and I landed in London and there was bombs going off in Belfast. <laughs> Small, like not like it used to be. And I get there and I'm like, um, what am I doing here? This is crazy. And they were worried about ticket sales. So they had me wear the jersey at a mall handing out tickets and I got kicked out of the mall. <laughs> and I'm like, what am I doing here? This is insane. I ended up doing the game. They sat all the fans, the Catholic fans, the Protestant fans together. That's why it's a teal jersey. And I ended up going back over the years and developing an amazing relationship. So that was really cool. Wow. First time in Europe. A couple of, buddy, a couple of my buddies were, I, I bet you that they were pl- on the, Dustin Johnner and, and, and Jimmy Vandermeer, Jumbo Vandermeer both played there. Um, I would yeah. imagine in the last few years, you were probably entertaining the crowd that was there cheering for them, which is, that's a small world. That's very cool. Um, that's by the way, that's one thing is like you, you cheer for a lot of the teams. I've done a lot of, um, WHL and CHL across Canada. And I remember having, um, an NHL player now he's like, comes up to me at, uh, I was in Minnesota. We we're at a store and he's like, Hey, I remember you from, I think you played for the Red Deer Rebels or team. Um, and he's like, and he's now playing the NHL. And I'm like, I actually didn't know who he was. And I was like, Hey man, he's like, I saw you 10 years ago. And I'm like, Oh my God, I've been doing this that long. <laughs> So, hey, how, let me let me how how have you managed through COVID? Like, I mean, obviously, your book is out, which is huge. Um, where can people get by your, your people can get your book anywhere they get good books? Uh, they can get my book through uh, Amazon on my website, CameronHughes.tv. I'll sign it for you. I'll kiss it. I'll cheer. I'll send a cheer with it. Okay. Um, and all the other bookstores. It's not in bookstores yet, but it will be. Okay, but people. And then can... I wanna, I'm going to go on a big Canadian tour. Yeah. I'm going to Winnebago and cross the country. You, I can't even imagine the the pressure of you. Like you show up on a book tour. If if your books are about like the carbon tax or like <laughs> the you know the history of you know Republican politics in the United States, you can show up and mar mar mar. If you show up on a book tour, people are expecting you to blow a gasket like every ten minutes. <laughs> It's going to be, I don't know how you'd manage that. That's a lot of pressure you just put in my marketing concept. But <laughs> yeah, well, sorry. I, but can I think that people, tour? at that point, we're going to need that more than ever. You know, like I always find there's a line, right? And, and you know, this as a host uh, on, on two levels, live and where you're, what you're doing now. There's that line where fans want to cross. I talk about it in the book about a few areas where I push fans and some people would be so offended by what I did. But in the context they wanted it, right? So if I'm at a book signing, you just gave me an idea. And I, I would like take t-shirts and, and while they're in line, I'd run up and down and get everyone going, do the wave. Yeah. You know, like people want it, right, Ryan? They want it. Yeah. You must, you must, I, I you're never going to confess to it, but you must need some downtime. Oh, like, look at this. These are like the all time greats we're looking at. Like That was uh, one of the best moments with Federer. Ended up doing that. I Love New York was the one of the best moments ever wearing buying that t-shirt for $10 and I strip off my last shirt and I'm wearing an I love New York shirt and ended up at center court with Novak. And then Roger Federer's agent called me and asked me to come and perform at Federer's charity event with him and Bill Gates. And he's like, Oh yeah. And we're going to surprise him. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely so we did amazing. 
And Roger came by my locker room and said, oh, I like walk, watching you at the U.S. Open. And I'm like, uh, I didn't know you had time to watch. <laughs> so, I mean, I've been lucky, you know, show up. Get up and I, I think that I, I think cheer. that you know it's it's amazing that athletes they, they they approach obviously their jobs with great professionalism so they can never really admit it but they do pay attention to stuff like this um I was lucky enough to get a Darnell nurse was kind enough to sign an Oilers sweater for me and didn't ask didn't say anything just handed him the sharpie and the sweater and he writes Jespo when do I get my t-shirt Darnell nurse and I was just like <laughs> What? Like what? But so so but but to circle back, how have you managed what what's COVID done to you? I mean, the live events business has has just absolutely collapsed. Well, yeah, I mean, that's part of the reason I have this studio now. I'm doing yeah. um, you know, Zoom meetings, I'm I'm doing some crashes, I'm doing some keynotes, I'm doing I've done a bit of everything. I've done about 80 uh like personalized videos and then I went on that website memo where, where people pay and nobody's hired me, but cause they all w- want them for free. <laughs> you know, the deal, right? Yeah. Um, I've done so many weird, you know what, you know what it is? I'll tell you this, what I learned, I said, yes. And I was having zooms with a guy in Italy. Cause he met me at the U S open. I don't remember him. And next thing I know, like two, three months later, my book comes out and there's a picture of the guy who I randomly had a zoom with, with his dad has, he's bought a book for his dad. Like, so just saying yes to all these different things has led to, you know, an interesting time and um, opportunities that I never saw coming. Right. I love it. We've, we've got like audience members right now are studying the wall behind you, which is no surprise. Um, people are pointing out the Red Deer Rebels sweater. Uh, Jay, my pal, is watching. He's a huge basketball fan. He says that NBA All-Star Game jersey. Did you did you work an NBA All-Star Game? I did. Yeah. NBA in 2016 in Toronto, which was really cool. Wow. Um and the, the, the cardboard cutout is from the AO Canada Go Hockey Canada campaign in 2009. That was a disaster yeah. uh, for all your French fans. <laughs> there you go. Amazing. This was in the mail. You um, haven't done. Uh, I'm going to walk around town with that today. Yeah, well, I, I would too. But pose for photos with it yourself. Take it around town like a Where's Waldo kind of thing. Hey, do you have a lot of Oiler fans uh, that follow you? We do. We do. What Why? about this? Yeah, I have a brand new Oilers jersey. That what, do you want to do a giveaway? We can raise some money for charity or a giveaway. Oh wow! Um, uh, yeah, you and, sure. You and I. Why don't you and I sign this and we'll do a fun little giveaway? Do we want to pollute it? But people want you to sign it. I don't know if anybody wants me signing that sweater, but of course they want you signing it. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, what do we? How are we going to? I'm trying to figure out how we do this to raise money for charity, or or we just do a giveaway, or we? Yeah. Why don't we raise money for charity? How should we do it on the fly? Um, I'll tell you what. How about you cook up an idea like in the next 30 minutes or 60 minutes and push it out on Twitter and then I'll push it out and then we'll figure it out because I don't I love it. I mean, you're you're a creative unless you have an idea right this minute. We can do it live. Well, I mean, I think we should do uh, if someone wants you can get people's tweets right now or you can hear what they're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, people are on Uh, our live people on our live chat. James says he does want James says he's okay with us signing the sweater. He'd be okay with winning a signed sweater here. Uh, All right. Well, let's just do uh, 300 bucks goes to charity. 300 bucks. Okay. Well, we've already got Chris is bidding 100 bucks. Um, Why don't we do it? Okay. Here's what we're going to do. It's by the way, it's authentic. Look at that thing. Oh, yeah. No, it's a it's a it's a wait, wait. You can smell my sweat. Yeah, you have to make sure that you sw- you're going to have to promise us you're going to put it on, run on the treadmill for a little bit. Um, I'll put it on and then I'll do a thing we call trash talk, which gets me sweating. 
Um, so then you'll have like, but see here, then we're going to, it's COVID. So we're going to have to spray the whole thing down with Lysol disinfectant too. You know, by the time it gets to you, you'll be fine. Yeah, that that's true. By the time you get it, it's, it's going to be fine. Um, yeah, Dorothy's pointing out. Yeah, guys, it's COVID. Um, uh, Heidi says we could do charity on YouTube chats. Okay. I'll tell you what. Uh, yeah. Sam's got the disinfectant wipes here. Uh, okay. We're going to say, uh, a $300 donation to charity takes it. Um, Cameron, you and I will coordinate behind the scenes and we've got to identify our charity. Is there one that resonates with you? You talked about your mom and breast cancer. You talked about your dad and having a stroke. We've talked about COVID. Um, why don't you pick? Well, I the- mean, the, I, the mental health is a big thing right now. And that's a big yep. thing tomorrow with Bell. Let's talk. So do you want to do something around that? Yes, let's do that. Why don't we do that? And um, why don't we you, do? You tell me. Okay, you there's a there's a there's a group show. there's a group in Edmonton um, called Momentum Counseling that offers free or pay as you can mental health counseling. So why don't we do why don't we take the top donation to this? We'll push it out on Twitter. We're going to say a minimum donation of three hundred bucks. We'll do the top donation. We'll put a twenty four hour uh, thing on it. We'll see where this bid goes. And, and, so, I'll, and I'll sign a book. You'll sign a book. Okay, so we get a signed book a signed Oilers sweater and we'll wrap up this uh, tomorrow at this time. So let's, we'll call it 1030 tomorrow. We'll know who our winner is. Cameron, we'll follow up with you. That's amazing. I love it. We're going to raise money for mental health counseling. This is just, we've already got it. Sandra's already given us a bid for 300. So has two beaver. Uh, so there's already a bidding war. So we're going to, we're going to raise some money for mental health. I love you, man. Uh, not just, be, you. not, not just cause you're <laughs> hilarious and you make everybody happy. Uh, but also oh, can I, can I end on one quick Edmonton story? Do whatever Real you want. Quick. Yeah. I'm, I'm I'm performing at an Oilers game. I got uh, the crowd's nuts. It's an amazing night. Fans are amazing. Electric. Connor McDavid. I don't know if you know him. He's a pretty good hockey player. He's, he's he all right. In, he's all right. He's going to do well. He scores a goal in um, in overtime. I had met him five years earlier. I was on a date in Quebec City when he was there for the Memorial Cup, and he was in there. We said hi. Anyhow. I'm about to go to my locker room after the game. The PR guys for the Oilers say, hey, can you wait? Because I had come around the way where the Oilers dressing room is. And I, I'm waiting. All the players come by. Some of them give me the fist bump, blah, blah, blah. And Connor comes off, gives me a big like, oh, my God, that was amazing. You were amazing tonight. I'm looking at him. I'm like, no, dude, you were amazing tonight. <laughs> you scored in overtime and you won. And it, 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 two things happened in that moment. First, the PR guys were like, wait a minute, what just happened? But secondly, I realized how humble Connor and, and, and NHL hockey guys are. Back to what you said about Darnell Nurse. You know what I mean? The, and they also care. They care about the crowd, Right. Yeah, And it's so important for fans to realize that players, athletes put so much time into their craft that we need to cheer them on. So that's my thing. And we also need to cheer each other on right now. And I've been trying to do that the best I can. I know you do that. So let's spread more cheer. I love it. I'm, you know what I'm realizing as you're telling this story, I'm realizing that I have that photo of you hugging Connor on my phone. So as we speak, I'm emailing it from my phone to Sam. So Sam can scramble and put it up on the screen so we can show everybody. Um, and we're already, we're already over 300 bucks. David's bid 325. We got 24 hours here to raise money. That's amazing. Um, love you very much, man. I can't wait for the next time that, that we're going to, um, that we're going to have a chance to work together. And plus, you know, I owe you a night on the town, uh, for what you did for me in Vegas last February. So, uh, I look forward to paying that debt. I know I it's, I'm leaving it there. It stayed there. I'm not providing There's details. No yeah. It's all about, it's all about spreading the fun, man. I Is that where you are? It. Where are you? Yeah. Where are you checking in from right now? By are you in Ontario? Are you in Las Vegas? Are you in California? Where are you? I'm in British Columbia in a top secret location. Oh, you're in BC. Okay. Cause yeah. you have, you have high flutin. I know I'm supposed to be wrapping. The, well, who cares if we wrap the interview? It doesn't matter to me. Um, but you, you have, you have some connections at, at like 24 Sussex, don't you? 
Don't you have? <laughs> don't did I hear a rumor that you have a like? Are you gonna be? Are you are you gonna be like uh, the next throne speech? Are you gonna be in the House of Commons? Don't you know a guy? Well, yeah, you know, I grew up with uh, our, our now Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. We yeah. literally grew up together from grade one to six uh, at a school in Ottawa. Uh, he used to come over and play, and the RCMP would uh, knock on the door and they'd sweep the house, and then we'd let let us play. And yeah, we grew up. We would go to Harrington Lake on you know wow. on the weekends, and yeah, it was pretty wild. So. He's in charge of the country and I throw sweaty t-shirts at people. Yeah, but <laughs> but but people might be happier to see you out west. So there you go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I haven't really been in touch with him in a long time, but uh you know what? I, I hope for the best for him because uh if he's doing well, the country's doing well. Yeah, right? no kidding, man. Always cheer for Canada. Uh there it is. There Sam Brooks is go. so good at his job. There you are hugging. And I and let me just say, so you're standing, that's that's called the chairman's club, um, just beyond you there. So those that that that's a pretty this is a spot of the rink that not many people get to see. Uh it's where the anthem singer Robert Clark stands right before he goes out. It's it's where I stand, it's where you stand before we go out. I can say that if it was anybody other than you, Cam, that was trying to hug 97 right there as he walks into the dressing room they would be promptly escorted from the facility they would not be welcome back i still never forget the look of the pr guys did connor just hug did, you like did he so. just yeah, hug so. the greatest player in the world <laughs> yeah, hey. we were both really sweaty that night too that was a great game and <laughs> i mean <laughs> I don't know. Now we're getting yeah. now we're getting a bunch of celebrity references. James is wondering. So Matthew Perry from Friends, did he he grew up did did you go to school with him too? Apparently Matthew There's a story in here about me me performing on the set of Friends. Yeah. There you go. There you go. There you go. People got to buy Isn't the book. Isn't that ironic? Isn't, Isn't it? that ironic? <laughs> Uh, Cameron, so good to have you on the show. Thank you. I seriously, my face hurts right now. I need to stop smiling for. I need to like calm down my jaw for a second. Cameron Hughes, am I doing this alone? Yes, I am. <laughs> is the world's most electrifying crowd entertainer? No, hang on. I get. I get into the spirit here for you. I can get it. Oh, come on, let's go. Come yeah, on. Yeah, I mean, come like, on, let's like, go. I'm not, I'm not, come I'm on. not ever going to be too big for, for getting excited. Get, so let's yeah. go, Alberta. <laughs> there we go. All right, there you go. Cameron Hughes, everybody. He's the world's most electrifying crowd entertainer. He's the king of cheer. And you can get his book right now on Amazon or on his website. Follow him on Twitter. Follow him on Instagram. And have a great day. Cheers, brother. Thank you. Well, there's really nowhere to go from there. (laughs) Except, like, I kind of feel like, you know. Now we're now I'm getting set for a t-shirt toss. I'm a long exhale after that. How do you come down (sighs) after that? You don't. Is, you it, don't. is it easier to come need, down after that or trash talk? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, that's like asking somebody, is, is it easier to chill out after skydiving or Formula One racing? <laughs> I don't know. I have I have no idea. But I do know that that guy, yeah, Nicole says, he got Connor McDavid to smile. That's incredible. Connor, Connor loves to smile just when he's got his game face on. He doesn't. Uh, he's stoic. He media. is stoic. So much, yeah. Lauren, Lauren says, I don't see the big deal. I got a real hug from a celebrity at Rogers. Um, Lauren and I met at Rogers Place in the Sportsnet Lounge, and we embraced. He walked up. I've told this story, I think, on Real Talk before. So Lauren comes up, and he's like, hey, man. And I was like, hey, man, because, you know, you say hey, man, lots. And uh, and he goes, all he, say, he just says his name. He just goes, Lauren Corbett. And I was like, we just embraced. We just hugged. It was amazing. Mark says, what a beauty. Uh, CJ. Oh, this is Chris. Uh, Chris, who was just on our mental health panel, he's still watching. I love that. He says, T-shirt toss. He says, man, I miss those. I miss the T-shirt toss. Um, I got to ask you something. Yeah. It's like, and I was going to ask this actually after the first game this year. It's like, 
how are you doing with not being in the barn this season? Yeah, it's so strange. Yeah. It's so strange. Uh, I was talking to, uh, a little bit to, you know, well, Johnny Infamous, the Oilers yeah. DJ, was on the show and um, had a chat with him last he, week. Yeah. And he's obviously been, yeah, he's, 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 are we scooping? I don't want to scoop his announcement. He's working on a project. He's working on a project. See, Sam is, Sam's always like sort of more of the, uh, not diplomat, but you're, you're, you have our, you're our voice of reason here on the show. <laughs> I say, Sam, can I mention this? If Sam goes, then, then we don't mention it. So Johnny's working on, but we, I was talking about that and, and Robert Clark, the anthem singer. So, you know, all these, those of us that are, you know, part of, because uh, there are people that are working games. If you're watching the National Hockey League, the NBA, whatever, um, obviously still the arena announcers are working, obviously people with the shovels on the ice and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's unusual to be watching from home last night of watching the Oilers and the Jets just thinking, you know, it was Oilers. Jets last game I worked was was the last game I think it was what was it March 9th or something of, mm -hmm. of 2020 was the last game so uh, yeah miss it um, let's give a shout out right now to the team at uh, Kubi Energy uh, now I, all I can think about is tossing t-shirts oh and to those of you that were asking if I would throw an old Jespo mug in on the auction sure yeah I will I'll even throw one of those airplane sized Baileys in there so you can have a Special coffee in your Jespo mug. All right. So th so maybe that'll bump the auction up a little bit. We've got Cameron's book signed. We've got the signed Oilers sweater. But, but let's clarify. It's Cameron and I signing it. And, and, uh, and then we'll throw in an old Jespo mug. Uh, happy to do that. Kubi Energy is a Tesla certified solar installer. And they're employing only journeyman electricians to do your solar installs. So if you want to have your solar system on your house you want to transform it whether it's a residential or commercial they've done huge commercial projects edmonton convention centers one you can do it with confidence knowing the team at kubi energy has you covered all the i's are dotted the t's are crossed and they're covering all your paperwork too including some of those reimbursements that you can qualify for you don't have to worry about it they got you covered and don't forget kubi sponsoring positive reflections every monday we want to hear your good stories see your amazing videos like the one two beaver sent us we can't wait to show that one on monday uh your stories of of resilience your stories of the letter carrier or the girl guides or the soccer coach or whoever it is that made an impact in your life we want to hear those stories we share them on mondays the team at local waste of course on fridays is presenting trash talk local waste has been in the waste management game garbage and recycling for more than 25 years locally owned and operated very proud to be working with businesses big and small this is the company you call you refer to them by their first name and they call you right back we're talking chris and lauren labas here at local waste you can give them a shout anytime check them out localwaste.ca they love to talk trash and of course their number 780-242-9746 and then there's the team at alta moving in storage doing an amazing job when it comes to the pod style containers seems like a trend but not everybody offers them alta moving in storage has them available as early as today whenever you need them they have your moving and storage solutions of course the short and long-term storage facilities as well and it's another local company so you know that if you have a concern or if you need something that requires some sort of regional awareness they've got you covered right here in western canada specifically the metro edmonton region at altastorage.ca and of course a big shout out to the team at park power in the electricity natural gas and uh, internet game they've been in there since 2013 and they've made a corporate commitment which i think is just remarkable it's why i mention it all the time 10 percent of their profits are shared with local nonprofits, with charities and you get 70 bucks off your first bill whether it's your business or residential service you're looking for if you quote the promo code 2021-realtalk 
at parkpower.ca. They're going to give you 70 bucks off your first bill. Let's check in on, you know, I want to check in on, on, on where we're at with regards to how people feel about churches uh, paying taxes. This is, uh, I just refreshed my screen here to get us up to date on my Twitter poll. We've been asking you, this was based on a conversation that developed here on Real Talk yesterday. Uh, closing in on 5,500 votes, the numbers are, are basically holding right where they've been. As a matter of fact, that's kind of strange. They're exactly where they were before about an hour ago. But about 82 percent of you uh, asked. And, and again, there's some nuance here to this conversation, which you've uh, referenced. Sam, maybe let's just leave this up here and let me just at random uh, so people know that I'm not I'm, I'm not just uh, trying to sort of cultivate the answers that will. Uh, oh, there's some some uh, spicy words there. Uh, <clears throat> Lou says render under Caesar. Even the Lord said they should pay taxes. Josh says it's about time. Uh, Murray Billet, formerly of the Edmonton Police Commission. What a beauty Murray is. Um, look at my private messages are coming up here. Whoops. Uh, Murray says uh, they're in the influence of people business. Most still discriminate in many ways and lobby government. So they should tax their business like others. Uh, fake as says, I think large organizations that have more than a certain level of real estate or investment wealth should hold that equity as a separate organization and pay taxes. Otherwise, most local churches are charitable organizations and operate as such. Would we consider taxing other charities? Uh, whereas Mayor Blaine says, well, then it, my mind says tax them all. But I understand there's more than fair space for education. Uh, Hendrick thinks that my question is poorly worded. Um, he says you're going to ignite a lot of passion. Um, oh, I see. OK, this is more of a conspiracy that Hendrick has because I said churches, uh, Christian congregations. But if I use the word like religious groups like mosques and synagogues and temples, I would get a kinder Canadian response. So, so Hendrick feels like everyone's just going to pile on Christians. Um, Lori says it depends if they serve the community or themselves. Uh, Stephanie says that when a pastor is driving a Beamer and his wife is rocking a Prada purse, then yes. But Stephanie says when my granddad was a preacher, he gave most back to those in need and, and took only enough to raise his seven kids. Uh, she says that they, they were charity by definition. That's what the church is supposed to be. Uh, that's interesting. I wanted to uh, Luke Fevin. The, the, Luke is. Um, Oh, I always forget what the name of it. it's something like the Society of Edmonton Atheists or Atheists of Edmonton or something like that. Um, but Luke is um, and I'm not saying that as dismissive, but let me just say that Luke is is schooled and has many opinions when it comes to the church and state, when it comes to to religious education, receiving funding, etc. Uh, Luke argues churches should be taxed uh, and then should get tax relief on charitable work like everybody else. Uh, the problem is that all three levels of government consider advancement of religion as a criteria for tax privilege that's incompatible with the charter and Supreme Court rulings. Um, I wanted to let me let pardon me while I screw uh, scroll through here because there's one uh, we had a response. Now there's there's uh, several there's many responses here, so maybe I've kind of screwed us over here, Sam, and trying to find this. But here it is. This is what I'm looking for. I wanted to get to Jeremy Duncan's. Because Jeremy chimes in, says, as a pastor. So I thought this was great. And let me see. Uh, I want to find his full uh, response here. He says, as a pastor, I have mixed feelings. Uh, says large churches absolutely can and probably should uh, pay property taxes, maybe over a certain threshold. But this would be the end of a lot of small neighborhood churches. He says, ironically, it would only make mega churches stronger. Uh, presumably same rules would apply to mosques, mosques and synagogues as well, obviously, and might disproportionately impact smaller faith communities. Uh, maybe a property tax that kicks in over a certain revenue threshold makes sense. And he says, and by the way, I pastor a large church. So my suggestion here is not to save my own community. Um, yeah, so he says, I think a property tax on a faith community could be reasonable. So that's kind of interesting. I always, I always, Sam, when, when we're having these types of conversations, I'm always more inclined. It's like I said the other day, um, when we talk about, for example, discontent with the government, 
it's it's one thing to hear from people that are perpetually critical of that government. It's not to say their opinion doesn't matter. But, you know, you know, oh, yeah, well, you know, you know, Shannon Phillips or Joe Cece uh, are upset with Jason Kenney. Yeah. Tell me something I don't know. But when a former constituency association of the United Conservative Party or when a former uh, you know, member of parliament for the, the Conservative Party of Canada or when a former liberal senator or when, uh, you know, when it's someone from within that base of support or in this case, a pastor from a large church is chiming in, in my mind, the comment is more enlightening. Yeah, it's cred, right? Yeah. It's it's it, it it gives the comment credibility, and I like I honestly think he's sort of spot on, and <clears throat> that's why it was like kind of hard for me to take a position on this yesterday when you when you asked me about it because like I can I can very quickly balance the plight of of mega churches who are sitting on stacks and stacks and stacks of cash, and you know tell people to pay tithing so they can literally buy private planes like that is that is in their business model uh to make the pastors rich like they should be taxed heavily and they should be contributing to the community that they take up so much airspace in and and that's why i think that you know something like a moderate property tax, something indexed to the amount of revenue uh having to show how much of their their money is directly used for charitable yeah. work like i i think that you know it's not a churches should or shouldn't pay taxes it's like Let's open up the tax code and figure out where churches fit in this. And and again, I, I say churches as a catch-all phrase for places of worship. Well, we should do. Yeah. And if you and if you think about conversations we've had on the show even this week, uh, you know, probably the most, you know, meaningful thing that you've just said, and 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 probably because it's the common thread through these conversations is we need to open up the tax code, right? <laughs> yeah. Because I talked about healthcare premiums, uh, I said maybe we should bring back healthcare premiums, and people just went nuts. I mean, some people said it's a great idea. Some people said, Ryan, why don't you just tell us that you want poor people to die? And I was, I was kind of like, uh, you know, uh, so you know, you you have these inflammatory type conversations, but really, I think what it indicates is whether you're talking about churches or paying for healthcare or whatever, we could probably stand to reevaluate our tax code. Speaking of that, a small announcement, and I just checked the time; it's almost eleven o'clock. Jeez. Yee. Well, um, we had a round table and a speaking King of, of cheer. which, a round table and the King oh, yeah, of Cheer. Oh, yeah, and guests before that. And too. guests before that, too. Max Fawcett and my beautiful bride, <laughs> which someone, Jay, was watching and he said that he, he described my fun conversation with my wife about reality TV as poor journalism. Um, it was not journalism, it was not intended to be journalism. Um, but, uh, but let me say this we did have a round table booked. I know a lot of people are really excited about it with Janice Irwin, the NDP MLA, and Vitor Marciano, Brian Jean's former press secretary with the Wild Rose Party. They came together in criticism of my perspective on health premiums. They agreed with each other. And I thought, you know what we need to do is get the two of you on the show to chat. So we had them booked for Friday. Now, life and politics happen. And uh, one of our panelists is no longer available on Friday. So Monday at 9 a.m., Monday at 9 a.m., we will proudly present, we're going to call it Meet in the Middle Monday. And Janice Irwin and Vitor Marciano from the left and the right are going to come together to talk about health policy and taxation and politics and it's not going to be boring i promise you with vitor and janice there's no freaking way it's going to be boring so look forward to that uh, a shout out to tracy now tracy i don't want to spoil you i've seen this as the father of a five-year-old i know that if you start for example offering up dessert after one weekday dinner they want dessert after every weekday dinner and tracy is asking for another random trash talk right now uh, i cannot oblige uh, mostly because I've not yet 
narrowed down this week's edition of Trash Talk. The bonus was was already curated. The bonus was already curated. Yeah. Exactly, because I totally blew it last Friday and applied the Trash Talk tone of voice and the rock and roll music and even the air guitar to, to emails that were calm and reasonable and rational. I picked up the wrong pile. Uh, so we had those Trash Talk. But I will. It's perfect, Tracy. You've set me up for success here, and we'll use this to say goodbye today so everyone can get on with their day. Jacques Lessard, uh, what a wonderful name. Jacques wrote in and titled this Trash Talk, but it's not a Trash Talk. And that's not a shot at Jock. It's just too calm and reasonable and rational to be in trash talk, but it's a good email. So we'll wrap with this. A reminder, you can email us anytime. Talk at RyanJesperson.com. We get a few hundred of them every day. We so appreciate them. We try to respond to as many as we can. Jacques says, Ryan, I love the idea of the roundtable discussions that you host on Real Talk, but I feel like they're not enough. Not enough to heal this current political climate. The roundtables have personalities from all sides of the political aisle, but they're mostly moderates. The problem is they're too reasonable. The real problem is that, you know, in today's political world, it's the rise of the unreasonable. When one side makes up facts instead of debating the merits of those facts and what steps might be needed to move forward, a proper discussion cannot be had. An example of this, says Jacques, would be climate change. Both sides of the aisle should agree that it's happening and reasonable people should be able to have healthy discussions on how to proceed on tackling that problem. But how do you have rational discussion with those that believe it's not a thing? He says a good discussion cannot be had as you can only have civil discussion if basic facts are agreed upon. The sad thing is that you now have political leaders leaning on these unreasonable individuals because it gives them a strong base for reelection. Politicians only care about the power they wield and they seem to use anything to solidify their base. That just my two cents from Jacques Lessard, a valued member of the Real Talk audience. Thanks, Jacques. We'll get to more of your emails tomorrow. Uh, coming up on the show tomorrow, very excited. Uh, we're going to be welcoming in, as promised, an agriculture roundtable. What are we not talking about this time of year that we should be? Plus, Tom Rockman on the disappearance of discourse. Why he's afraid to head out on Twitter. And don't forget Andrew Fung from Kim's Convenience joining us Friday. Have a great day.